everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 397. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host, David Pixenspan. And Bix, we, we're going to try to get have a guest this week, but scheduling conflicts got in the way. So it's just me and you on a very different and interesting show, Between the Sheets, this week. Yes, as this is going to be more than two-thirds Dave Meltzer in Japan. Yeah, um, which is, you know, uh, an interesting time in, you know, in wrestling as uh, he's over there, and especially in Japanese wrestling. So we'll get on that as we uh, move on. But we do want to uh, mention here at the beginning of the show that, of course, our uh, dear friend Dominic Greeny was on with us last week. And after we recorded the show, the weekend after the show, he got into a car wreck with um, an AW crew that was in the car with him on a snowy road and uh, told the car. But luckily, everybody was all right. But um, yeah, so uh, what timing for him to uh, have this happen while, um, you know, we had the show coming up and everything. So uh, we're definitely, definitely happy that everybody uh, came out of that fairly unscathed, no serious injuries. And, uh, and yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. That was certainly something to wake up to on Sunday. Um, but, you know, by the time anything really came out, it was more or less known that everyone was okay. Just sort Yeah. Of. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting that, you know, we had a show with him in the can. This is the first time I think that's ever happened where we had a show in the can with a guest, and the guest got into some type of accident like that. So that's a... Yeah, interesting uh, turn of events that took place Yeah, over the last weekend. Yes, yes. And I think some people were reacting to the photo before they read what Thorne wrote about everyone seemingly being okay. So I think people were also having flashbacks, you know, to the Buffalo Kids car accident from a few years ago, you know, where... Yeah. Daniel Garcia broke both of his legs. Kevin Blackwood almost died. Yeah, I mean those uh those snowy roads, man. You never know what could happen, that's for sure. All right. Well, let's get to the show, shall we? As we're discussing the week that was March the fifteenth through the twenty first, nineteen ninety one. And yes, this is a heavy, heavy dose of Dave Meltzer in Japan. And the big topic of the week is uh New Japan with WCW Flair. As literally start yeah, as it is the Super Show, Starcade. Um, yes, Japan 91. Super Show slash Starcade ninety one in the Tokyo Dome. That's right. So we start. We have to start with the morning of March the twentieth. All the wrestlers and company officials, along with the press, met at the KO Plaza Hotel for a luncheon. The way everything was handled gave this a show the aura of a hot heavyweight title fight. Davidson's reaction from this is the WCW officials could and should have learned so much from how this was all handled. And there are things that could, they could have picked up, and we'll see in the future if the power brokers were there to learn or just there to watch a wrestling card. But so much of how and what was done to create these, this atmosphere are things that simply couldn't be done right now in this country. The difference is the overall respect that the business and sport of pro wrestling have in Japan as compared to the United States. It was overwhelming. There were probably a dozen times as many reporters at the show than the WrestleMania. None were there to see comedy in their stick. 
Dave's impressions that none were there with the idea of, in mind of writing a cutesy comedy column or making fun of the surroundings. At least the war that was makes fun of the press conference the day before the Evander Holyfield Buster Douglas fight. When Mantone Nookie walked in, it was not like a celebrity just in the room. It was more like George Bush. Dave recalled that summer when he was in Japan and saw an Japan show at Budokan Hall. When Giant Baba came out for his match, the pop and crowd reaction was different than anything a U.S. fan could envision. They believe he wrote back then that Baba was not a popular wrestler like the Ultimate Warrior Hulk Hogan, but on a plane much higher like the respected political leader. If respected and political leader aren't oxymorons. A few days before the car, Dave was on the subway and was talking, to, talking wrestling to some people who were not really wrestling fans. In the United States, as everyone knows, most people who don't like wrestling pretty much knock it. These people didn't knock it, but one of them brought up Baba, and the basic com- comment by everyone was that the entire country of Japan is so proud to have someone like him as part of their culture and history. Anoki is different than Baba, more of a grandstander, as you'll see later, but also far more charismatic. He's like Dusty Rose, both in ego and also in charisma, but taken to the thousandth power. They did form a contract signing, so oversized gimmick contrast for the five big matches on the show. Jushin Liger and Akira Nagami for the junior title. Stiders, Hiroshi Hasek, Kisuzaki for the WCW and IWGP World Tag Titles. Doom, against Big Van Vader and Bam, Crusher Bam Bam Bigelow. The Great Mute, that's what it says here. The Great Move against Sting. I love that, The Great Mute. And Rick Flair with Sesame Fujinami for both the WCW and IWGP World Titles. Now, Ric Flair's ring style is still made for the United States, but the outside of the ring ca- champion character Ric Flair really shined here. Sometimes his interviews that attempt to legitimize wrestling on the world title is comparable or even above any championship in sports, or almost comedy in this country, because of what the wrestling product has turned into. In his early days as champion, that may not have been the case, because the title really did have a lot of prestige among wrestling fans, the biggest belt around. But in recent years, as wrestling has drifted more towards exaggerated characters and bad comedy, doing a serious sport interview seems out of place. In this setting, it was perfect. All the interviews were translated both into English and into Japanese. Hase did a super interview, as did both Flair and Fujinami. It was acknowledged when Doom came out that the two had had their problems in the United States, but both said they had come to Japan to win their match. And Simmons says, we're not here to discuss what's going on in the United States. Whatever product makes what favors in regards to pro wrestling, it compared to different styles, whether it's Lucha Libre, MWA style, WS style, UWF Japan style, All Japan, New Japan, whatever. The fact is the Japanese style itself enables a sport. And you can't argue the word sport doesn't apply here. To have a level of respect and mainstream popularity that the product it makes in this country simply doesn't allow. The question is, can these concepts be exported and make pro wrestling respected on the same level here? This question will never get answered because what Japanese wrestling has become is a product of 37 years of evolution. It started as a catharsis for a somewhat insecure and bitter country come off a brutal beating at a war. Getting a nationalistic ego boost from a man named Ricky Dozan continued beating larger American opponents. Eventually, however, Americans became popular, and right now there's no nationalistic catharsis involved in pro wrestling. There are no baby faces and heels, at least in the exaggerated sense in this country. In most cases, the heat comes from the action in the rain rather than personal characteristics or simply getting the Pavlov's star reaction from which dressing room one walks out of. And let me tell you something about that. That is so true in this era. Like, you watch the the big all-Japan matches. Um, this, the multi-man matches. Anytime a multi-man match, whether it be tag or uh, trios. Um... There are no babies and heels. The fans boo 
when you break up a pinfall or a submission attempt. That is what gets the heat. No matter who it is, that is what gets the heat more than anything else. It is so odd to watch through American eyes how that how that takes place. Did you ever did you you notice that when you watched it? I feel like that was always what got the most heat, but I didn't feel like it was every match necessarily. No, it's all the, the big matches. But even the big matches, I don't feel well, like it's every match. But like well, it, you it know, depends, it also depends on where the building was. Cork and Hall, you got that more than any other place. Well, you would get that like distinct, like "Hey, a boo" kind of thing that was unique to Japanese crowds. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you get that, but you would get regular boos too. And didn't matter who it was, it, whether it was Jumbo, Masawa, whoever, if you broke up a pinfall, they're booing you. So, yeah. And the thing is, like Dave's talking about here, with the, you know, all, all, it's perception that from the beginning of what wrestling is. The U.S. was all, I mean, in wrestling, we can go as far back as the early 1900s. It's in the newspapers that it's fixed. It's fake. So when the real media, quote unquote, doesn't respect it, then it's going to get respected by the general masses. You have to re-educate everybody in that way. That's just how it is. The media in Japan respected it totally differently. And the way in wrestling being a form of combat fighting was to which the Japanese culture took way more seriously than anything else going all the way back to, you know, the old, old days, you know, whatever, you know, karate or anything like that. Sumo wrestling. I mean, it's something that carries more weight there than it would here, you know, because it is more of a combat sports culture at large on top of just boxing here or whatever. At the time, and, and yeah, exactly. And then you 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 also put in the, you know context is in America, you have Major League Baseball, you you know, w- which was around in the old old days, and then you add in football, hockey, basketball. So you add all these other sports in that Japan really didn't have as national pastimes or anything. I mean, they did have baseball, but that came after the war, basically. You know, when it got it got majorly popular. So, wrestling is one of the major sports. So it it has more of a cachet in, in that way in Japan than it would here as well. And it's got national heroes of wrestling, and also the hookup with sumo. Sumo is the the big sport in Japan. So you got. Exumo guys involved in professional wrestling. I mean, there's so many tie-ins with things that make it where it's going to be something that is a bigger deal there than it would be here. So that's the facts. Yes. And primetime TV on networks and all that comes out of that, too. Exactly. Truthfully, because of the high ticket prices, the audience mix at WrestleMania in Japan is probably right now more comparable to something like tennis. You know, the sport when it comes to economic levels of the live audience and actual crowd reactions. One of the biggest lures in the U.S. is simply the outrageousness. Outrageousness that makes it entertaining, but also leaves it with disdain from outsiders. 
to gain respect as such as having the president of the television network at a pro wrestling press conference and having them not even to look out of place, the outrageousness has to be done away with. But even at that, if one is, was to try and do that, there's no guarantee wrestling's inherent fakery. We keep it at the same level that you're on public disdain at the same time. The lack of outrageousness may lose a segment. The audience. Nevertheless, Dave's got a lot of major sporting events. Nothing on the level of Royal Series or Super Bowl. And at this event, had the R on the level with the best of them. In that way, it was so far superior in importance to any wrestling review show Dave's ever seen in the United States. Kind of a culture shock, since Dave saw this as similar to just going to another pay-per-view wrestling car. And by the way, we should make clear, this is Dave's first time at the Tokyo Dome. Yes. It, um, it's only New Japan's fourth Tokyo Dome show. The clo- I mean, the closest that wrestling ever got to that type of mainstream acceptance was the NBC era and Dick Ebersol. Yes. Being involved. I mean, that is the closest. Because Dick Ebersol's a big deal. Yes. And, you know, no matter what came later, to have that kind of time slot, which I'd love to find out one day why the once a month plan never really ended up coming to fruition, even though it's obviously what they wanted to do. Uh, but still like on one of the big three networks, when it was the big three, you know, in a Saturday night live, you know, rerun, what would normally be a Saturday night live rerun slot outdrawing what a lot of new Saturday night lives were doing. Well, cause Saturday night live was not good in that era. I mean, it's, the first, I mean, the first season, I mean, yeah, Saturday main event, you had the first episode, couple episodes may have overlapped with the Billy Crystal season, but really it doesn't, I mean, the the, the big shows aired during the first Laura Michaels rebirth season. The Brat Pack which, season. Which is one of the worst ever. Yes, but then, I mean, most of the Saturday Night's main event era overlaps with arguably the best era of Saturday Night Live, the uh, Phil Hartman and company. Well, yeah, but it, that, that it takes it takes it a little bit for that picks up the steam, though. Popularity wise, yes. Because you got to remember, you know, even even going into the early nineties, I mean, when Stern's on WOR, oh yeah, in he's New be- York, he he's was beating, beating it. Yeah, he was beating in the ratings in New York. Now, I mean, it's New York, but still, he's beating it in the ratings. Yes. So it was still had. Some traction left to go, but yeah, I mean, as, but that's also interesting too, as Saturday Night's Main Event goes on and Saturday Night Live gets better, we kind of get less Saturday Night's Main Events. Mm-hmm. Which and year that's when it the starts. most? Ooh, 86 maybe? I'm about to check. 86 or 87? I mean, that sounds right, but let's see. Uh, looking at Jason Campbell's site, scrolling. Okay, there we go. Saturday night's main event. All right, so eighty-five is three. Uh, eighty-six is five. Eighty-seven is five. Eighty-eight is five. Eighty. It looks like it's eighty-nine at six. Wow, I wouldn't have thought eighty-nine. January, March, May, July, October, November. Hmm. Then ninety wow. was four. Yeah, so obviously that's not counting the primetime specials. If you had in the primetime specials, then 89 would be at 7. I mean, it would still be, you know, the winner, because even 90 has the two primetime specials, but they only have four 
Saturday night's main events. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah I would a, not have just, guessed different. that either, though. Yeah, just a, you know, just different in many ways. All right. Some of you who were in Toronto last year at the Pontiac Silver in 1987 have seen wrestling before it's large or even larger crowd. Crowd size doesn't give the event the feeling of importance, but it's also a negative in many ways. Pro wrestling, from a spectator standpoint, is at its best when one can be emotionally involved in the proceedings. The involvement in the great match is almost exactly the same, whether it's in New York, Greensboro, or Tokyo. Reactions in prelims may be different, but once a match has everyone truly hooked, they may pop in a different manner, but the type of excitement is the match, with the match creates is exactly the same. But in a huge building, that just isn't there. The vast majority of fans are too far away to really hear the smacks of the flesh and jump out of the chairs where every twist and turn of the match. Dave recalled last year with the Hogan Warrior match that the majority of the readers who saw the card and saw the match live weren't nearly as impressed as those who saw on pay-per-view. From far away in the bleachers, it, was seen, it seemed like a lot of rest holds and stalling. Oh, close to the emotion of all, it was the twists and the turns. It was great drama. Even a large building, you'll notice most of the real heat from the crowd is coming mainly from ringside. And when one's in the upper deck, the car seems to lack heat. In this building, most fans were in the equivalent of an upper deck, or far worse. But maybe what the show lacks in that way, as far as really getting the matches, it gains to being a major spectacle. And that's the thing. I mean, it's all about its business. It's all about making money. And if you could run the biggest building, you can make the most money. So you're sacrificing the intimacy of crowd heat, like a cork and hall, for the big money of the Tokyo Dome. Yes. Now, as years have passed and we've gotten more used to the screenings and stuff and had more of them added at stadium shows, the heat has gotten dramatically better. More so at domes yeah. than outdoors, obviously, because of the way everything just kind of goes up and the sound is not trapped. But, you know, compare Tokyo Dome, especially earlier in the card these days, to, you know, the 90s. Yeah. Um, okay, you have only been of stadium WrestleMania's, you went to Georgia Dome, was the only one, right? Yeah. I went to the first uh, MetLife one and the second Superdome one. First uh, MetLife, I was kind of in the bowl, and it just, it was not, I mean, that wasn't a particularly good card outside of Punk Undertaker anyway, but it's outdoors, that was one of the ones where the pillars were in the way, and it just, it, it was, you know, fun to experience in a way, but that is not a great example of a heated recent WrestleMania. New Orleans was better. That one I was really high up because I just, I wanted to do like one dome WrestleMania. So I was like, okay, I'm already in town. I was mainly going for other shows and went and, you know, fun at times, but that was also a really long WrestleMania. So whatever. But I do, how much do you think is the screens though? Just to circle back and how much do you think is just changes in the type of crowds that are going to a WrestleMania? I mean, and the Wrestle Kingdom, I guess, too. I don't know. I mean, I guess I mean, screens do help for people that could look like that, but I'm more often than not, if, you know, at WrestleMania, the Georgia Dome, I mean, I'm just watching the ring. I ain't watching the screen. Because that's, that's I mean, I just want to focus on what's going on there. You know, it just feels more natural looking at the ring, looking at the screen. I mean, I agree, but in Jersey, we had to a lot of the time because of the stupid pillars. Well, I mean, something like that. Yeah. But, um, 
New Orleans was more kind of back and forth. Um, and we also need to remember for the purposes of all this, the more time passes and we realize how much attendance was exaggerated and stuff, Tokyo Dome is a lot smaller than the WrestleMania stadiums. Yes. So in theory, you should be able to get heat more easily there. Yeah. Because it's like, for wrestling, you've got about, you know, with the stage setup, you've got about 40,000 people in there. Yeah. All right. Dave arrived at Corken Hall around noon, March 21st. Thursday was a national holiday in Japan, which explains how one could draw such a big crowd for a Thursday afternoon show. Basically celebrating the equinox, you know, the first day of spring. The place is already jammed with wrestling fans. They were selling the dome program super slick, like nothing you've ever seen in the United States. But then again, it should be when it goes for $15. The programs are selling like crazy. Because sessions alone on a major show like this have to be incredible. Someone told Dave the UWF on this Tokyo Dome show in 1989 did $1.1 million just in concession sales. And Dave wouldn't be surprised this show didn't top that. Starcade windbreakers are going for $37 a pop. Interestingly enough, just 100 yards or so away from the dome and up a few flights of stairs at Corkin Hall that day was shooting Satoru Sayama's attempt to create a new sport. There are about 500 fans in attendance in the hall that is nearly sold out every time pro wrestling arrives. There's an article in the April issue of Inside Kung Fu, a U.S. magazine on Sayama. These days, Sayama refused to talk about pro wrestling. When we got into the building a few hours before showtime, we saw most of the Japanese wrestlers on our right doing either lightweight work, jogging, or Keiichi Yamada, like without the hood, doing what seemed like 45 minutes straight of squats with weights. Without weights? Without weights, excuse me. Hindu squat, attack squats, free squats, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. A few Americas, most notably Brian Pillman, got in the ring to continue to test the ropes. Some of the other WCO personnel, particularly Jim Ross, Rick Steiner, Tony Schiavone, were taking photos of the building like tourists. At about 1 p.m., they did a run-through of the opening ceremony, in which on the giant screen, they would list the match and have interviews and or angles that set the match. The sound system in the dome is the best of any arena Dave's ever been in. Shortly after that, they opened the doors to the fans. A few minutes later, they started running close to the big screen in New Japan's two prior Tokyo Dome shows. First, they show highlights of the first show on April 24, 1989, when the Soviets debuted. Then they showed some clips on the February 10, 1990 show. This isn't uncommon for New Japan. In 1987, Dave was at the Tag Title Tournament Final in Osaka, and before the crowd on the big screen, they had the championship match at different tournaments dating back to the late 70s. Wrestling is so much more historically oriented there. All the fans know Lutez, Carl Guy, Tricky Dozen, Destroyer, Fred Blasty, and the rest who are instrumental in the sports early popularity. In some ways, that early popularity reached a level today's wrestling never will. For you who follow TV ratings, check this out. Back in 1962, a TV match between Freddie Blasty and Ricky Dozen drew a 70 rating. Not a 70 share, a 70 rating. That's bigger than any Super Bowl in, in history has done in the United States. The biggest rating pro wrestling has ever done in this country was a 15.2 for the Hogan-Andre match. In 1967, two competing groups, the JWA, which formed in today's All Japan, and IWE, which folded in the late 70s, ran head-to-head one night in prime time. JWA headlined with Giant Baba versus Crusher Lazowski, YWE had Luthez versus Great Kusatsu. Bob and Crusher drew a 48 rating. While Thez and Kusatsu and IWE had to be satisfied with a 28 rating. On that Saturday night, virtually everyone who was watching television was watching one of the two wrestling shows. <laughs> that's crazy. But that's, again, that shows you how ingrained in the culture pro wrestling was. 
in that country. And again, that's reading, not share. So that's 74% of people with televisions in Japan were watching wrestling that night. Yes. Um, Going back a little earlier, the concessions stuff. I'd love to know more about this. I've never really done a deep dive into it, but it's like, I don't think it's a stereotype. I mean, I think it's true when you see it with like a lot of the demand for Japanese versions of things and all that. Like, especially if you're charging more money in Japan, the people who are looking to buy it are expecting a more premium product. You know, yeah, the big. I think the big thing everyone sees this with is like you know. Well, at least records. back then, at least back then. No, but even. I don't well, know. I won't say now. <laughs> I mean, the programs and stuff are still very high quality. Well, um, yeah, I, I get that. You know, WWE didn't start doing that kind of quality of program until, like, what, the Dome Every Year Mania is probably, and maybe not even the beginning of that. Like, was the Atlanta program like the Mania programs are now, or was uh, it still not I never, bu- never, I didn't buy one. Okay. Not, yeah, I didn't buy it. Yeah. Um, how about Chudo? Yeah, which had been around. That's the thing. Shooto had been around two years. Pro Starting Shooto. 89. Yes. Mm-hmm. A- amateur Shooto had been since 86. Yeah, so. Um, but is Dave saying he went? No. Okay. He said, because you can remember, Cork and Hall is right there at Tokyo Dome. So he went through Cork and Hall to get to the Tokyo Dome. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that's how he went there. All right, at the same time as this was going on, the bathrooms were filled with kids painting their faces in the mirror like the great Muda. Dave's been to arenas in the States to see a few face-painted kids, particularly the Road Warriors, were hot in the early days, and also for Sting Ultimate War, but he never walked in the bathroom in which every mirror was filled with kids painting their faces up. The show started at 3 p.m. with about 10 minutes long opening ceremony on the big screen. Ring announcer Hidekazu Tanaka, who would announce the match, which appeared on the big screen, then one side or individual, then the other would do an interview. The interviews were done the previous morning at a hotel, and most were done in American style. The fans laughed at the Japanese doing American interviews. Some of the Japanese just did calm interviews as well, usually ending with some sort of good close remark, because most interviews ended with a hooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooo
Next match, Kuna Kobayashi, Taki Kazuka, and Shoko Shinaka defeated Brian Pillman, Tom Zink, and Tim Horner in 12-10. Kobayashi's haircut looks awful in the 1990s. <laughs> Same haircut as he had in the 80s. Zink opened with three drop kicks on Kobayashi. Pillman was doing really stiff chops that you could hear in the cheap seats. The Americans all tried to get over and showing their stuff to a lukewarm reaction, but they did a lot more than the U.S., Zink was billed as the Z-Man, which was kind of funny because he had more recognition in Japan than Zink. There were miscommunication problems because none of these men have worked together, nor do they speak the same language. Actually, the Americans, Horner's work was the most solid, although Pillman did the flash of moves. Pillman did a high drop kick, followed by another top rope, and then a crossbody ball from the top rope to the outside of the ring. The matches were in Japanese style, one hot move after another. They went to the near falls, which included Pillman doing a Satoru Siyama splash off the top rope. And Horner trying the same move. Pillman did like Sayama. Horner didn't, and Horner was laughed at. At the several hot near falls, Azuka pinned Horner with a dragon suplex. Full Nelson to a German suplex. Three and three quarter stars. Sayama style splash would be what? His, like his moonsault or his swan dive? The one where he's in the air and he swan dives, basically, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where it's just like his whole body out, you know. It's kind of like a, kind of like a, maybe a Mil Mascaris type dive or something like that. Okay. So. Scott Norton pinned the Equalizer. Yes, Dave Sullivan in twenty two twenty three. Equalizer came out with face paint stormed around his ring injured like Bruiser Brody. Big mistake. Yes, it was. Norton got a huge pop coming in. Although Norton is a good worker, he's huge and walks around like he's a tough guy, and if people buy it. He's got that you-don't-want-to-mess-with-me presence, which will and already has made him a star here. In Japan, they equate power with sumo wrestlers, and like U.S., which equates power with bodybuilders. Thus, the thick-waisted and even fat look of a Van Vader, who's huge all over, gets over better than a chiseled bodybuilder like Lex Luger would. This match was real bad. Bad timing. Fans laughing. Norton did a stiff, all-caps, clothesline, like the finisher, but picked equalizer up at two. Then Norton for a power slam for a finish, but it was totally screwed up and got the pin. Norton should not have pinned the guy with the move and done something else because it was too weak for a finish. Norton knew the match was bad by the way he walked out of the ring, and so did the fans. Equalizer was booed a lot because he was a heel, but not because he was a heel, because he was really bad. The worst part was Equalizer trying to Brody boot to the face and falling down. Negative half a star. This match sucked. Dave Sullivan looked terrible here. Terrible. When didn't he? Oh, I mean, it, it's, it makes it worse because he's trying to do the Brody act, and it just did not work because nobody had done that in Japan since Brody left. Yeah. Brody died, excuse me. So, yes, it just – it was horrible. Not on the pay-per-view, folks. Yeah, If you want to see this match, you have to watch uh, New Japan Classics. Find it somewhere. I don't know if it's on New Japan World or any way or not, but good God, it's horrible. And Norton just looks so fucking upset to be in that match. Oh, my God. Jushin Lair, IWGP Junior title, pinning Akira. Akira Nagami debuting that gimmick of uh, him in the Kabuki-style face paint and shooting the webs and that stuff. In 1608, Dave Nagami changed his name similar to Akira and came out wearing ninja garb like Kabuki suit in the United States and with a painted face. He shouldn't have painted his, painted his face because that gimmick should have been left to Sting and Muda. Interesting point. Lyra came out with the hottest looking ring costume Dave's ever seen. He wrestled wear to a huge reaction. Yes, this is the emerald green and gold Liger outfit that I think he only wears at this show. 
Yeah. Akira sprayed Webb out of his hands like Spider-Man before the match started, which is kind of where WCW got the Aratna Man gimmick from. Liger opened by throwing Akira out of the ring, then climbing top rope and diving off, doing a full flip midair and crashing into Akira, who was standing on the floor. The rest of the first five minutes were mainly on the mat. Then Liger tried another dive over the top rope outside the ring, but Akira met him on the way out with a kick to the ankle. Liger started selling the ankle, which he really injured some time back, which is why his stuff hasn't been as spectacular of late as last year. Akira started selling the knee. They took turns using holes on each other, each other's bad body part, until the 10-minute mark when fans who wanted to see hot moves and flying rather than the match of this time started chanting, do something, do something. People, the Americans need to pick that chant up instead of boring. Just say, do something, do something. Even though Liger sold the ankle in the knee rest of the match, it was hot from that point on. Liger went for a suplex all the road, but Akira headbutted him, and Liger took the bump. Akira went for a splash, but Liger got his feet up in the face. Akira was down. Liger was still on the ankle more. Really, both guys were hurting real bad at this point as they went to all near falls. After Akira missplashed off the top rope, Liger put him in a Liger bomb similar to Scott Moose Scott Steiner does and starts double-arm suplex into a power bomb. But Akira kicked out. There was a lot of heat at this point. Liger didn't pick the Akira up for a superplex, but as he stood in the top rope, instead gave him a superplex, he used a DDT off the top rope and got the pin. After the match, both men shook hands, and Liger was limping all over the place. And seeing that, Akira carried Liger out of the ring to a dressing room, three and a half stars. The odd thing about this is they, the Akira does this, you know, the, the gimmick here for the first time. It's an IWGB title match. And then it's not very long after this, Liger drops the belt to Nori Honaga, and Honaga drops the belt to Akira Nogami as him, himself, not in the Akira gimmick. WCW affiliate, everybody? <laughs> very weird. Very weird. But yeah, this is the gimmick that Akira used at the Clash. Yes. In 92. And this is the first time Liger appears on any kind of American programming. Um, In a match, yes. I think they showed clips of him before this show. I believe so, yes. The video that Missy narrates, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, but this was a big deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because he was, uh, you know, it was one of these guys that you always heard about in the newsletters, and if you weren't, if you didn't have the, uh, the ways of seeing Japanese wrestling on video, I mean, this is it right here. Now you're seeing him. Oh, the Missy video is from December, so if there was a video in advance of this, then it was a different one. Yeah, uh, there there was something I, I seem to remember. Now, had you seen any Japanese tapes yet? At oh, this absolutely. Point? Had, had you seen Lager yet mm-hmm. before this pay per view? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, saw his first match. <laughs> watching this stuff, we uh, watching this stuff on a fairly regular basis to a friend of mine. Okay. All right, uh, Arn Anderson and Barry Winham beat Masahiro Chono and Masahiro in nine seventeen. Nothing wrong with this match, but it got no heat at all. Actually, the work itself has been, been average, but it came like a dead match. Finish saw Wyndham clothesline Saito and Arn pin him two stars. Very underwhelming. Very underwhelming match, considering who's involved. You know, Arn's first match in Japan. Yeah. Wyndham had been in Japan before. Yeah, you'd expect these teams to match up well. Yeah. Chono's about to get the big G1 push. So, yeah, just a weird weird match alright uh, during the first intermission they showed in the screen big screen highlights of an upcoming movie a ninja action movie that's about to release they started a movie they did a pre-recorded tape interview telling great Muto or Mute here to beat Sting at the Tokyo Dome the star is a pretty major celebrity in Japan any idea what movie this is no idea none 
I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it was Chairman Kaga. I don't know. Which uh, in some of this all, in all Japan 91 TV I'm watching, Chairman Kaga is in this is in a commercial where uh, he plays like this throwback guy that from like the 30s and 40s. It's a cigarette commercial. I mean, Takashi Kaga yeah. was a decently well known actor pre yeah. Chef. Ain't like fucking Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Tremendous commercial. At this point, they brought out cheerleaders to do a few routines for the rest of the intermission. Then came Jim Hurd to do a speech, basically saying the two groups would continue to work together. Give was something to the effect of, on behalf of World Championship Wrestling, Ted Turner, TBS, and CNN, I'd like to welcome you. Like WCW has anything to do with CNN. They drew 64,500 fans into a car and still can't get CNN to cover them. Well, did they? <laughs> wow. You know. Actually, I forget. Is there a stage for this card? I mean, there's the ramp. But how big is the stage? But it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if there's the ramp, then yeah, there's a stage. So yeah, there's. I mean, I guess it's possible the cards without any kind of stage or ramp drew closer to 60 if they sold out. But something like this would not have. You just imagine Jim Hurd giving a speech to the Japanese fan. Ah. <laughs> oh, man. Hilarious. He'd start talking about the war in Korea. <laughs> then came Antonio Noki, who got the biggest pop of the night and among the bigger pops Dave's ever heard in his life. It was a bigger pop than Hulk Hogan usually gets, but not as sustained as Hogan's are in this country. He was almost scary, however he is. A week before the car, there was a poll in Tokyo newspaper of men aged 20 to 30 for the upcoming mayoral election, and Anoki had 70% of the vote. The next day, Anoki withdrew from the race. It was perfect timing because Anoki was going to finish third in the race and really had no chance to win, but it was in a spoiler, spoiler role in that his leaving would determine who would finish first. So he pulled out, giving an excuse as much as he wanted to be the mayor. He realized it was more important to be a world leader than to run Tokyo and pulled out. Amazing. Mr. Man couldn't put off a better work in his dreams. So this guy had the public at large convinced by pulling out when he did the day after a poll that showed him on top that he really could have won. In other words, he didn't want to do the job on election day, and now it comes out even better. Amazing man. Anoki started thanking the fans, saying, Because of you, I'm able to be a political leader. He went on to say how sorry he was he wasn't wrestling the car, but had, he had an important political meeting in France. And he had to leave for the airport in an hour. He didn't apologize for not wearing a suit and tie as the occasion deserved, but said the minute he got to the arena and saw the crowd, the competitive juices started flowing, and he started working out backstage. Which is actually true. He was jumping rope for a long period of time backstage and doing lightweight workouts. He was wearing his sweats. At this point, wrestler Black Cat attacked Anoki, but Anoki made a quick comeback and put Cat in the dominant stretch and brought him down from there into a cradle for a three count. Not coincidentally at all, that was the same pinning maneuver Fujinon would use later in the car to beat Ric Flair. Then the other two ring boys, tra trained to be pro wrestlers, jumped in, and Noki clobbered and beat both them up as well, and left to an even bigger pop. <laughs> what a man Antonio Noki was. Yep. He's got a meeting in France. <laughs> <sighs> Who was the... Uh... WCW international official for France. Uh, that would be Christine LeBlanc. Maybe that's who he's meeting with. Christine LeBlanc. Discuss important business. 
Sure. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing bad. Next, the Steiner brothers became the first tag team history to hold the world tag titles in both Japan and United States simultaneously, winning what was billed as a match for all three major tag titles, WCB world titles, U.S. tag titles, and IWGP world titles that the two teams held. On TV the previous Saturday, they kept talking about how Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Saki, should they win, would become the first triple crown tag team champions. Everyone knew this match had the potential to be the best on the card, and most everyone thought beforehand it would. Even the fans knew. There's one question, however. Since both Steiders and Hase were all top-match amateurs, some thought the Eagles might get involved and they tried to bull the other, which would be interesting for the rest of the watch, but hurt the bout from a fan standpoint. It didn't happen. Hase and Scott opened in trading good moves. Not hot moves, but good moves. Rick did a 100-degree flip off a of Hase clothesline. Fans in Japan never actually seen Scott Steiner. Rick came four years ago. They were trying to downplay that Rick had ever been in Japan. He popped the fans big doing the Saito's suplex, superplex combination move. Scott did a belly-to-belly. Rick did a bear hug over the head superplex. They traded Stefano clotheslines you could probably hear in the bathrooms. Rick did a German suplex that would have been seen to be believed. Hase did a giant swing, but Rick didn't know how to do his part. Laying out so you're easier to swing, so it wasn't as good as Hase's usually is. Scott did double arm turn into a powerbomb. Hase finally made his comeback doing a rush suplex on both of them before giving Sasaki the hot tag. Sasaki superplexed Hase onto Rick for a near fall. Hase tagged it and gave Rick the door to light suplex. But Rick kicked out. Scott did a tilt to world slam. Hase made a comeback. Tag Kensuke, but Scott on his shoulders to the setup for the Steiners version double team bulldog off top rope. Hase and Sasaki been used on television for the past few weeks. Rick broke it up before they could do the move, and then Scott got Sasaki on his shoulders, and Rick did the bulldog off top. Finally, Scott pinned Sasaki after the Frankensteiner. Surprisingly, the Japanese fans didn't pop it off with the Frankenstein because they didn't know what it was, although Doug Furness had been using the move in all Japan cards in 1256. Both teams hugged Shikansu after the match. Definite match year candidate, although Dave's not sure how Sasaki's television match the previous Saturday with Izuka and Koshinaka wasn't every bit as good. Four and a half stars. All right. Let's watch this, shall we? Let's watch the finish this match. Yes. When did the American pay-per-view premiere, by the way? April, because it was for Super Brawl, right? And so that set up Flair Fujinami Super Brawl. Okay, I'm trying. I don't know why I'm not finding Firefox in my screen share. Give me one second. Uh, oh, this okay. I see. Um, I do find it interesting though that Dave mentions that I guess in Japan it was promoted as also being for the U.S. tag titles because most title histories have the Steiners vacating as soon as they won the World Tag Titles in February. Yeah, but it never really was official to the tournament. Right, and the tournament finals aren't till May. Yeah. Yeah, did they... I don't think they came out with the U.S. tech belts here, though, did no, they? No, they, they didn't. They didn't. Okay. So realistically, they're vacant, but I guess this was promoted in Japan as being for all three titles. Yes. Fans are very surprised that a fan favorite like Sasaki would, would interfere as he did. But this one is for... There's never been a tag team match broadcast. Yes. No, they're not, Jim. <laughs> it went to what I just said earlier. Anytime somebody broke up a pinfall attempt, the fans booed. <laughs> That's what it was. Also, as Dave alluded to earlier in some of the notes, uh, JR and Tony are at the dome. They are, but the commentary is not done there live. Oh, none of it was done there live? Only the wraparound? I don't think... I think I, I think the wraparounds were. I don't think commentary was done live. 
it sounds like it's real commentary. Let's see. It has a special riding on it as this one. Now the Steiners double teaming. Hiroshi Hase. Both men in. Yeah, he got one. He kicked out Scotty in a side suplex. Holding from the chin. Sends Scotty down. Tremendous move on the suplex. And now Sasaki. The first time I've ever seen that from Scotty Steiner. Protecting his brother. Running slam in his corner, too, where he can make a tag. Oh, that, this is one of their favorite moves. Watch this. Oh. He suplexed his own man on to Rick Steiner. Hase did not go for a pin there, though. He's going to try something else. Another Northern Lights suplex. Nobody gets out of this one with Rick. the bridge. And Rick Steiner did it. He got out. Look at the surprise look on Hase's face. No kicks out of the Northern Lights suplex. But Rick Steiner is in the book. Duck the clothesline, and they both meet with a clothesline, and both go down. Wow. Now, Nick Patrick saying both men down. He's going to start a count here. Who can get up and make a tag first? Rick's tagged in. Scott. Scott Steiner going airborne. Well, this one is very, very close. Pick up. That's what he calls his tilt-a-whirl slam. And Hase, did he make the tag? He did make the tag. That was a smart tag on his part. Sasaki is in. Scott Steiner continues the assault. No. That was almost a DDT, but he turned it around on him. And then he's back down first. Well, he looked for the adulation of the crowd. He didn't get all of it. Now, they're going to try to pick up Scotty Steiner. Maybe you talked about their top rope bulldog. Steiners. This is the move that they perfected in the United States. Trying basically the same thing. They have Sosaki up. Hase on the outside. There's a bulldog. Oh, Sosaki's in big trouble. He, he looks like he's going to try to set him up for the Frankensteiner. This crowd and these athletes know the Frankensteiner is the coup de gras. Listen to him. Here it is. He got him. The world champion, the Japanese champion, the United States champion. Three championship belts. Belts that currently nothing else has ever been like it. Tremendous win, Jim, you're right. And the fans really appreciative of both teams, but especially the Steiners. And as you say, IWGP. That has to be a dub. They must have already been using their New Japan theme here. Yeah, well, you know what the New Japan theme was, right? Oh, Ligante's theme. Ligante's WCW theme. I totally forgot that Ligante used that. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. Let me see. Yeah, that's it. Oh, that's what they <laughs> used here, though. So they're not using that's their what, actual no. New Japan theme. 
No, that's what they used in Japan. What I'm through 1991 when I'm watching. Oh, they okay. use it at the uh, at, at Budokan. So when do they start using? Hold on. Oh, I don't know because I haven't gotten that far yet. It, it, you know the song I'm talking about. The uh, it was mid song. Hold on. Now. I mean, they're using it by January 4th, 92, because that's the show where they have Steiner against Sting and Muda with the live band doing all the songs. So I would think it's soon, right? I'm trying to... All right. Okay, hold on. Um, okay, they were using that. I was... That's wrong. I, was, I was, thought that was Higante's song, but yeah, they were using it in Japan this time. Okay. They were. I always liked that one. But, but Higante came out to it as well first or before they did something he seen i remember him coming out to it on new japan show uh, or something I don't but anyway i mean yeah hasa sasaki were a hell of a fucking team hell of a fucking team although holy shit was this match falling apart at the end yeah yeah hot moves though but anyway, yeah Higante pinned the big cat, Curtis Hughes, in 211 with a claw. Higante worked the crowd well and got over good. He could be a big attraction here. He teases the moves, fine to do a suplex on Hughes. That's about all he did. But the only second girl guys like that size in Japan, one star. It is amazing to me how he didn't become a bigger deal in Japan, Higante. Yeah, although New Japan kept using him after basically everyone else had stopped. Yeah. But still never reached that higher plateau. All right, next we get Big Van Vader and Crusher Bam Bam Bigelow being doomed in 1317. Ron Simmons got in the ring and said the match was signed several months ago. He came to Japan to win. Hope his partner felt the same way. This was good and very stiff match. Both teams traded power moves early. At the Bigelow and Smash on top rope, they got heat on him for several minutes. During the comeback, as Bigelow was coming off the road, Simmons pulled the rope down and Bigelow took a backward bump over. Simmons slammed Bigelow on the floor and they thought we were going to have an earthquake. Bigelow kicked out after a few near falls, and they finally had a hot tag in 11 minutes. Finish saw Reed power slam Vader, but he missed the flying shoulder block off the top rope. Vader gave him a clothesline and pinned him after a splash. Considering the type of match, it wasn't a little too long, but other than that, it was good. After the match, Reed and Simmons shook hands, but when Simmons turned his back, Reed jumped him and started pounding from behind. But Simmons made a comeback and chased Reed away. There didn't seem to be a purpose for any of that, since Reed and Simmons aren't going to wrestle each other in Japan. The vast majority of the fans had left their seats if he could say standards was going on during the core stars. Yeah, I mean, you just watch, on, watch this on the classics, you know, deal. And uh, it just, it was odd watching Reed and Simmons team up here at this time. But it didn't air in the United States, so the United States fans never saw it. So, yeah. All right, during the intermission, the band played rock music. The band was the one Inoki brought on tour with him to Iraq back in December when he had the festival there with the wrestling show, the soccer game, and concert. And Inoki brought back the Japanese hostages in exchange for the festival. <laughs> again. Again. A hero. Next, Grand Muda pin Sting, 1141. Both guys got huge reactions from in the ring. Muda's reaction was the third best of the night, trailing only Inoki and Riki Choshu. This match is almost exactly the same as the one the two had in 1989's Bash. Pay-per-view, except for a different finish. The high spots were great, but there wasn't much in the way of transition work. 
Moon did a dive over the top first, and Sting came back with a press slam, dropping Moon over the top rope up to the floor. Sting did a dive over the top to the floor. Response were very similar to the ones they used in the United States. They even did the Muda thing where he was on top rope for a moonsault. Sting dropped, kicked him while he's standing, and Sting really didn't get up high enough this time to make it look as good as he used to. Then Muda put, crossed himself. Sting did a backward superplex with Mr. Randy Savage over the top rope. After they missed simultaneous drop kicks, they went to near falls. And then when Sting went for his stinger splash, but Muda got out of the way. Blue misses Sting's eyes, and then Muda pinned him with his crossbody block off the middle rope. After match, Sting attacked Muda and gave him the stinger splash scorpion. Sting was booed pretty heavy for attacking the guy after the match was over. The Japanese show gets Sting off Tom Zink, Rick Steiner, Tim Horner, and Brian Pillman jumped in. And they had a mini battle roll with the Americans versus Japanese. Even though Muda was the heel, he was cheer morning Sting, except when he irate, in which case he was booed. Sting was booed at the end for attacking Muda after the match. Three and a half stars. Hell of a well-timed finish, though. Oh, yeah. The way he catches him coming in on the stinger splash with the mist and then slides out of the way. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it was fun seeing them against each other again. Um, it kind of it lacked the magic that it did two years earlier, but a lot differently. Both yeah. men were were two years older. Sting had come off his major injury. I mean, it's just it's different. That said, I but felt fun. like they had the magic back as a team at the January Fourth show the following year. Like, I feel like they could have done more with them teaming up. Yeah. They could have done more here, at least, with it, but they didn't at that time. Ricky chose she retained the greatest 18-club World Martial Arts Championship by knocking out Tiger Jeet Singh in 11.07 on a match without a referee in the ring. The greatest 18-club is this gimmick that Anoki thought of, when it is, whether, uh, thought of where it's this club where he is the president that consists of the 18 greatest wrestlers in history. Supposed names include Inoki, Vern Ganya, Carl Gosh, Lutez, Billy Robinson, Andre the Giant, Stan Hansen, Johnny Valentine, Hiro Matsuda, Nick Bontwinkle, Johnny Powers, Willem Ruska, and a half dozen others. And they got together and picked the World Martial Arts Champion. The same time Inoki used to claim in the 70s and 80s when he had these mixed matches with the boxers, judicas, and kickboxers, etc. They presented Choshu with the belt at the press conference the previous day. Greatest on the belt is spelled Great List, Bix. <laughs> or excuse me, greatest G G R E A T I S T. Seeing a ring announcer Tanaka with a saber and he juicing the forehead and lip. Tanaka came back doing the interest for Flair Fujinami with a towel with blood stains around his head. That was amazing. He also attacked Juice Choshu, undid the turnbuckle padding, and t- ran Choshu into an undisposed metal. Choshu made a comeback and posted Singh twice. Got the saber away and Singh juiced. Choshu bled heavily. There was a big pot when he made his comeback by giving Singh a low blow and then a second one. Singh came back with a low blow. Choshu did two insecurities and a lariat to the back of the head. And the ref counted the 10 count for the knockout. As a match, Choshu put Singh in the short arm scissors, which got a big pop because fans remember that Anoki uh, broke Singh's arm in a 1976 match using that same hold. Singh. Tiger G. Singh, yes. 1976. Um, because that was the big feud back then. Dave had that's why they were popping for short arm sisters. Singh was booed pretty heavily, partially because he was a heel, more because he was just playing Sting's the wrestler. So he was involved, this wasn't bad, but not being bad for a Singh match is pretty bad for anyone else. Singh did a pretty cool interview because since saying 
an F word around 32 times, star and a half. The thing about Tiger G, G Singh here in Nice and Anyone New Japan is he gets linked up with um, Masakurisu and then uh, some others, and they doing this whole outside deal in a way. But he's also feuding with like blonde outlaws at one point. They have a disagreement. And of course, the regular baby face and stuff. So he's got options across the board. So, I mean, it's, 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 Tiger G Singh was an interesting guy and it, much more interesting in 91 all, New, all, New Japan than he was in all Japan the previous couple of years. They kind of like revitalized him in a way. They gave him a new theme song and it was heat angles and stuff. Him and Choshi had a real, real hot angle on uh, one of the shows leading up to this show where fans are like, they're about to riot. Um, yeah. It, he actually was was pretty fun in this era here in New Japan, I thought. If you say so. I'm serious, yeah. Trying to see if one of the it surprised drives me. has the, at least the Japanese version of this with the promo. And uh, I'm able to make it so I can see the whole title of everything here so it's not scrolling off. Okay. If I hover over, because I want to, because I do want to play that promo, but because then he just yell fucking Choshu over and over. Something like that, yeah. Okay, let's see. I'll mute it while I pull it up, or if you want to find something. What do you think of the Greatest 18 Club, by the way? I mean, you don't have the promo. I uh, get it. Doesn't it, look like it. it. It's just a thing. And look up there. There's the uh, blonde outlaw shirt. Yes, I want one of those. That looks lovely. Um, I mean, they did they did the deal the year earlier for Noki's 30th anniversary, where they had those guys that were available to be there, there, and you know, to honor him at Yokohama Arena. Yes. So that's where it came from. So I have no problem with it. Different. It's different. Yeah. So a different concept. Also, those Star K ninety one and the Tokyo Dome windbreakers really do look wonderful. Yeah, they were nice. Yes, uh, over eighty dollars with inflation. Yeah. All right. Next, we get to the main event. Oh, excuse me. Before the main event, they announced a return date Tokyo Dome on January fourth, nineteen ninety two, which got a big reaction. The tenant plans to run another joint show with WCW. It was announced the show would kick off the nineteen ninety two season, which would be the twentieth anniversary of New Japan's promotion. And the first January 4th show. So, yep, this is where the tradition begins, 1992. Is January 4th a holiday or anything? How did that even become the day? It just became the day. It's not a holiday. Hmm. Yeah. Tatsuma Fujinami apparently pinned Ric Flair in 2320, apparently retained his IWGB title and win Flair's WCW title. Hopefully, they'll show the pre match pad to Trump Everview because it was more impressive than the match. Flair came out with three models in bathing suits. Yes. Pujan was carried to the ring. Then they brought out two referees, Masan Hattori and Bill Alfonso. At this one reporter asked Dave what that was all about, since they never announced a match of having two referees. At that point, the finish came pretty obvious, and one reporter just looked at Dave and said, I think I want to cry. <laughs> um, Going by knowledge of American wrestling and sense of humor and... Would be candid enough to say that to Dave, that has to be uh, Fumi Saido, right? Probably, yeah. 
before the match started, two rock stars in Japan, one named Joe Yamanoka, who's half American, and the named Johnny Okura, saying the first American, first the American, then Japanese national anthems. Dave was told that both guys were roughly the same status as someone like a Huey Lewis of the United States, or not so below a Phil Collins. Saturday night's main events, Phil Collins. Yeah, and it, I mean, it definitely was interesting seeing those two guys in the ring singing the anthems. Um, and Phil Collins also had just done the video with Warrior, too. Yeah, that's right. Typical flair match. He did a little more because Fujinami's more versatile than most of Flair's US foes. But they also had occasional communication problem. These guys are so good at covering their mistakes, however. So it's a great match because Flair's US spots are made for the United States and some of them don't work in Japan. But it still was a comic class to see two guys with total understanding of how to work a match against one another. Well, it would have been five stars in 1988. <laughs> Flair's begging an upside-down bump to the corner don't get over it all here. The begging was really out of place in this environment. Flair was booed, but it wasn't heat booing if you get Dave's drift. It was more groaning booing. The chops weren't real hard. Chops were real hard. And Fujinami's chest was red quickly. Another thing Flair did that didn't get over was the move where he draped Fujinami's leg over the top bottom rope and jumped up and down sat on it as a setup for the figure four. Fans were booing that a lot, which Dave could understand. Apparently, they were mad Flair was stealing a move that only the Destroyer couldn't use in Japan. Can't blame Flair for that one. Actually, Flair did more on offense than his usual U.S. match. And truthfully, in the U.S., the Simmons that match would have been better than four stars. It's all action one spot to another for 23 minutes. Flair got in there, falls at their net breakers. They want suplex and vertical suplex. Fujinami made his comeback. Flair did a flip into the buckle. Sent landing on his feet, but Fujinami drop kicked him off the apron and to the floor. Fujinami pounded his head into the guardrail and flared juice. From this point, the bout had a lot of heat with the hot moves in their falls. Fujinami kicked, ducked out of the way of a tackle and flared hit the ref. Bill Alfonso, only ref around the ringside for the match, a tour was announced as a sub-ref. With the ref down, Fujinami did two pinning maneuvers on Flair, got three counts, was counted by the crowd in unison, but with no referee. He did another pinning move in the crowd chant for the pin and Flair kicked out too. A Tori came to ringside to help Alfonso. At this point, as Alfonso looked up and a Tori was looking down, Flair charged Fujinami his foot over the top rope. The dusty finish struck Tokyo. A Tori jumps in the ring the referee. The two go at it for a moment with Fujinami putting him on the abdominal stretch, then taking Flair down into a cradle from this point and getting the three count as the place went nuts. Fujinami was announced as Unified World Champion. He was carried for the ring to a tremendous reaction. Four and a half stars. Excuse me, three and a half stars. All right, so let's watch Ric Flair flying off in Japan here. But a suplex in the middle, he might have gotten it. But Flair is just so tough, so resilient. And the dirtiest player in the game now. Going back out in his domain. I'm getting with those chops, but the dragon continues to fight him, Tony. The referee, look at the, the referee is, is, doesn't want this thing to end this way. Neither do the fans. They were chanting Dragon's name. Yeah. 
Tsunami just threw Rick Flair over the top rope. Did Alfonso see it? That's the big question. Alfonso looking that way. You That's see a disqualification. You see Tiger Hattori in there. And now, pick up, vertical suplex. Well, out over the top rope is an automatic disqualification in this particular match. My question is, did Alfonso see it? There's a guillotine. was knocked down inadvertently by Ric Flair and he went on the out this whole replay thing a little bit yeah uh, okay just a weird finish for a New Japan main event you know very yeah. American very American very Flair pill finish well and also who's booking WCW Dusty over the All top right. rope. The referee of record, Bill Alfonso, I'm sure saw that situation. We'll find out more about it in just a few moments. But er There's a good JRism, that situation. <laughs> JR, and most of the Vinceisms are also JRisms, too. So. Well, uh, no, I, I, th th some are, but that big list, a lot of them are not JRisms. This one, I think, There's don't, a lot doesn't of become a Vinceism either. No, but earlier all in all. No, there are. Medical facility being the obvious one. Sports entertainment. Skull. 
Tonight, even more controversy involving Sting and the great Muta. Sting is adamant. He wants a rematch. Uh, and, and we're going to go back and take a look at a piece of the action involving that contest and hear some comments from the Stinger. I told everybody in Japan, everybody in Tokyo, I wanted to come here because of the great competition against the great Muta. Great competition in the United States, first time here. I never expected something like this. This is not what great competition is all about. I don't care there. where it is. The United States or Japan, Muda. I want to get you back. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, we look, certainly look forward to that uh, rematch with Sting and the Great Muta. But now we're in the press room here at the Tokyo Dome. So much. The reporters are all wearing the silver Starcade 91 in the Tokyo <laughs> Dome windbreakers. And y'all want to talk about WWE press conferences today. NAW press conferences. Could you imagine if an yeah. AEW or WWE press conference had everyone wearing? Oh, God. You would be losing jackets. your mind on Twitter right about you would, you'd be scared. You'd be firing off some scathing tweets at... And uh, Sean Ross Sapp and uh, people like that. <laughs> Joe Lanza would have a stroke. <laughs> yes. He would call them clapping seals. <laughs> Controversy surrounding this situation. Now the fans, the 64,000 were here in the Tokyo Dome, fully believe that Tatsumi Dragon Fujinami is the new WCW World's Heavyweight Champion. But He's we saw from our vantage point, and you saw the exact same thing. Uh, he threw Nature Boy Ric Flair over the top rope. The referee of record, Bill Alfonso, saw that action. Now, the rec referee of record did not make the one, two, three count. So this, well, the way that we see it right here is that Nature Boy Ric Flair, because of that disqualification, hey, is, is still... Wait a minute, there's... What do you mean this? Where's that fish out there? Who are you? Hey, Samurai Flair. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. There's a, we got big problems here. Flair's got the belt. What a tragic situation here. Uh, international repercussions here. Flair has taken the belt and has left, ladies and gentlemen. Nature boy Ric Flair has uh, has uh, left this press conference and this press room with the belt. This is the most... And uh, obviously Mr. Fujinami is very upset. I want to call... Uh, any English owners with your feelings, do you have any response to what just happened? I don't know the English. I beat him, you know, three times, one, two, three. I'm a winner. Why are you taking my belt? <laughs> well, Fujinami was a doctor when he worked in uh, America as a young boy. Dr. Fujinami. No, Dr. Fujinami. Okay. And, and Jim Crow Promotions. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. You know, we have Tony accidentally showing up on camera here in the backing away with the nervous look on his face. Um, at Full Gear in November, I went to duck into the restroom real quick before I left after the press conference. Um, I was not in there long. I was in there like a couple minutes. And then I come out and they cleared everyone out and Tony shooting a pre-tape in the press room. And I had to very quietly duck out of there. Hmm. Because Tony's in the middle of his pre-tape. And I'm sure he would have been angry if I interrupted it because it's Tony. So, you know, he's got to hope that he's going to get it done in one take. Yes. But. So not explained yet, I think, in our week here. But the story, as it ends up being told in Japan, is the match was for the NWA title. And who well, the NWA title. Oh, we do have that? Okay. Don't get ahead of yourself here. Okay. 
All right. So let's continue. The card ended at 7.35 p.m., slightly more than four and a half hours, which is normally way too long for a wrestling card. <laughs> Just you wait, Dave. But not in this case. It was hardly over at this point. Fujinami was in his dressing room, surrounded by about four dozen photographers shooting a billion shots apiece of him with both belts. Ron Shavani were in another part of the building filming the press conference, which no doubt ended with them stripping Fujinami the belt. At least that's what we figured. Just about every reporter thought this was a legit world title change, except for the few who knew English and had traveled and seen this finish for Star Kid 85. Fujinami left the press conference area with the belt, and that was the end of the show. Well, that's with his IWGP title belt, not the WCW belt. The card airs on Pay-Per-View in U.S. edited down to an hour and 50 minutes on April 7th. Matches that definitely won't be airing are the opener, Norton Equalizer, Choshu Singh, and the Doom match. Dave's not sure how much the remaining seven bouts will be edited to be include Niger Nagami. Live, this card wasn't as good as Phoenix, but it edited right, and the only advantage Phoenix should have would be the, of that it was longer. All right, here we go. Now, we've talked about some of this stuff on a previous show, because we did the week after this week in the past. After the show was a sayonara party in a nightclub in another part of town. Flair continued to call Fujinami champ, and there wasn't any, even any hint of controversy. Then came the March 22nd issue in the Con Sports. The entire front page of the newspaper was devoted to Fujinami becoming the 75th NWA world champion. NWA means a lot in Japan. WCW means nothing. So it's continually called the NWA world championship, which it was actually, folks. It was the NWA world heavyweight title. At this point in time, it still was. It doesn't change until Great American Bash 91. Because Flair is still the NWA champion because he still has the belt. Well, no. Technically, there's both titles, but they're represented by the same belt. I think it was February 1st was when it became both titles. Well, at least officially, that's how it's looked at. So... But Flair is the, the NWA champion. It's still the NWA championship. Right, but the way it ends up being recognized is that Flair lost the NWA title here, kept the WCW, or or that the WCW title maybe wasn't on the line, and then wins the WCW, excuse me, the NWA title back at Super Bowl in St. Petersburg. Well, here here's what, what it says here. All right, so Dave says we'll print the front page of the paper next week, which he didn't. The ethnic papers that day still had no hint of the contract. Yeah, wait a second. I mean, I I guess Dave still has a couple typewriter observers after he starts using his computer, but yeah, why would he be reprinting that? That's not how the observer's done anymore. The story that Flair left Japan with the belt hit the papers on Saturday afternoon the 23rd. As the storyline in Japan goes, after the Sonar party at midnight, Dusty Rose and Barry Windham, who are the heels in this controversy in Japan, went to Seiji Saguchi and told them the result of the match is no contest. Well, I wonder why Barry Windham is part of this, Bix. Would it be because he's an assistant booker? He's Dusty's assistant. And previously was the interim booker. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Flair is still the champion. The claim was that Fujinami threw Flair over the top rope, which I'm at the queue, but since the ref missed it, they felt that simply the match should be ruled in no contest. Saguchi didn't claim that the over top rule in Japan is not DQ. This is a match in Japan. That shouldn't be an issue. Saguchi's claim was the NWA bylaw state that in the event of the referee who was able to perform with the world title match, the sub referee's in charge, which was Satori. So Tori was in charge of the pin, and Sakuchi claimed Fujinami's a champion. The story gets even funnier here. As according to Tokyo Sports Story on the 23rd, a reporter who must have figured out what was going to happen talked with Bill Alfonso and asked him who won, and Alfonso said Fujinami won. Oops. 
So now you got both refs agreeing with the decision when the original story Dave heard was supposed to be all, all along that was the American referee would say Flair won, Japanese ref would say Fujinami won. That'd be everybody. The reason they didn't do just the dusty finishes done in the United States is because the fear of doing that screw job would have ended up with the place rioting, which probably would have happened. <laughs> so they did the Vern Gagne yeah, send the fans home thinking of the title change until two days later they read the real story in the newspaper. As the story continues on Friday morning, 7.30 a.m., Mr. Tetsu Baisho, the business head of New Japan and a crook. And Saguchi had another meeting with Rhodes and Wyndham at the hotel, but they couldn't come to an agreement. And at 9 a.m., the WCW crew left Tokyo for the trip home. Suppose Saguchi and Fujinami go to Atlanta to further try and rectify the situation with Hiro Matsuda as their mediator. Also, Dave's getting things confused a little bit, though most of the American Dusty finishes were overturned by the end of the show. The most famous one, Starcade 85, that he referred to earlier, did have the fans leaving, thinking they had a title change. They sure did, and then didn't didn't announce the change until the next Saturday, two days later. Mm -hmm. The newspapers over the weekend were really negative towards WCW of the situation. Comments like, taking the belt away Fujinami was bullshit. (laughs) We know the NWA needs this world title about the United States for its house shows, but the situation is ridiculous. And this WCW dirty trick finish is nothing but trouble. They've already ruined their company at home with it, and now they're going to ruin our wrestling with it. We're plentiful. <laughs> oh, I love it. They've already ruined them themselves. They want to ruin us. I mean, there's a thing. We are in the era of Japanese professional wrestling where DQ finishes, especially in your main event matches, Ultraman is completely non-existent. And New Japan has really toned it down heavily, too. You get clean finishes in all the main events, basically. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, now you're doing this. Of course, they're going to be ranting and raving about this shit. Mm-hmm. So, as the story goes, Fujinami is recognized as the NWA World Heavyweight Champion in Japan. Flair is recognized as the NWA World Heavyweight Champion has the belt in the United States. And the two have a rematch on May, ni- May 19th. Mix. Sorry, I missed my cue. May 19th. It's been a while. In St. Petersburg, Florida, ready for the situation. Oh, that is nice, but can WCW get Fujinami over? Fujinami would do a few TV shots between now and May, apparently. No, he doesn't. Strong enough to have a main event on pay-per-view in seven weeks? Fujinami has to come out of the match with when it airs looking here looking like the baby face. But at the same time, Flair is still one of the most popular wrestlers in the promotion, and Fujinami's an unknown. It's hard to believe U.S. fans who have been trained by all the promotions to hate foreigners to begin with will cheer an unknown foreigner over Ric Flair despite the storyline making Flair to heel for the match. And can this draw the main event on pay-per-view? They'd be very surprised if it can be pulled off to where the match even equals the buy rate of Phoenix. Technically, it'd probably be better since Flair style is such, Flair style is so much more suited for the U.S. Fujinami is versatile enough to go with the flow. Well, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't draw. But the main match is, uh, I mean, the main match on that show is Sting and Luger against the Steiners. You know, I think that's the, the draw of the show, actually. Would you agree with that? To a certain kind of fan. I mean, the tag. Yeah, I mean, Sting Muda for the first time in a while is probably the biggest draw. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, all right, Fujinami doesn't do any uh, TVs. Oh. Dave's convinced this show would have, should have been a free clash of the champions rather than a 995 mini pay-per-view on a tape delay. 
the best television reign WWE's drawn recent history was the first clash had to have WrestleMania four. The only people who order this review are the kind of people who either buy any wrestling event, the total hardcore junkies WCW already can sell their product to, and the newsletter readers, which WCW can already also appeal to. This show, because of its international scope and the size of the crowd hyped as being live, and the real show was just three days earlier and nobody in the States knew to finish this really by then, and aired on WrestleMania Day, we gave the promotion a major credibility boost. It wouldn't be seen as just a Georgia regional thing, and the way the Japanese handled the title match would make the world title seem like it was not only more just company champion, but a real world champion. Granted, going head to head with a pay per view of Mania is partially a predatory move and under normal circumstances would be considered a cheap business tactic. But the question is, the situation will reverse, what would the WF do? Sorry, Michelle before in Chicago and Phoenix, WCW pay per view shows. The WF just sit back and let them run a successful show without attempts to hurt the gate. And what about recent events in regards to booking arenas? WF did everything in their power, even pull out the Meadowlands completely as a final ultimatum in order to keep WCW from getting dates in the New York market. The Meadowlands didn't back down and tightens out. But many other arenas in the past have, and it's kept WCW out of some markets and in other markets, forced it into secondary facilities, which make it already have the secondary promotion stigma to it before it comes to town. Once it comes to town, it usually enforces the secondary stigma, but that's another story for another day. As of right now, WCW will be out of St. Louis after the end of the month when Kiel Auditorium is torn, torn down. The arena St. Louis, which has an exclusive with Titan, has had a threatening letter sent by WCW, and no doubt will like to avoid litigation and allow broke groups in the building. At the same time, Titan is firm. He'll pull out of St. Louis at WCW's allowed in the arena. And since the arena is run by Spectacore, which has an excellent long-term relationship with WF, this is going to be an interesting battle. While watching the Dome show, probably the single biggest point of curiosity was how would American fans react to the aftermath of the Liger-Akira match and the Steiner's tag. In the form of the two guys, the acrobatic moves U.S. fans had never seen, and when it was over, the loser carried the injured winner back to the dressing room. In the latter, we had to take a wrestling match with a match of your caliber heat and assignment ending with all four participants shaking hands and raising each other's hands when it was over. But most people watching would be those who've already seen things like it before, or already such hardcore fans that this will not change their opinion of wrestling. For a clash, there would have been five or six million viewers. It would have marginally hurt WrestleMania in the boss office that this should be WCW's goal, but it would have resulted in it. The vast majority of those will see spot scenarios, the likes of which never seen before, and the crowd decides which never seen these wrestlers perform before. I thoroughly agree with Dave. This should have been broadcast on TBS, not a pay-per-view. Although the WrestleMania thing probably isn't doable, because as Dave knows at this time, they had pretty much promised never to do that again. Well, here's the thing. What time did WrestleMania begin on that night? Oh, you think maybe put it on at like 2 o'clock with WrestleMania starting at 4? Well... Either that or do it after WrestleMania's over with. Do it in prime time. Yeah. Which would clash with being prime time. So do it as like an 805 clash? Yeah. I'm curious. All right, what day was WrestleMania? Uh, Dave said four days later, right? So the 25th, I guess? Let me see. WrestleMania 8. Or 7, right? 7. Yes. WrestleMania 7 was March 24th. Okay. Um, All right, so... Also, by the way, with Dave talking about Spectacore, does he not yeah. remember that Crockett sued WWF and Spectacore for blocking them out of arenas, and they settled? <laughs> I guess so. Although, maybe uh, maybe since it's not legally Crockett, maybe. Who knows? Well, there is that. Alright, let's see here. I'm trying to find some TV listings here. For March 24th, 1991, uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, 
Let's see here. Alright. So all right, that's that's the twenty whoa, why well, they got Saturday in here? <laughs> Uh, so Saturday late night. Okay, excuse me. Alright, so Saturday Prime. Why are they have the Saturday TV listings in the Sunday paper? That's it's the odd. following Saturday. Then. Yeah, uh, maybe. I've seen stuff like I mean, that searching before. I don't see the Sunday. Well, I don't see Sunday. Okay. That is odd. Well, I mean, it's TV. Uh, yes, you don't need to use the AJC. I know, but that's the first thing I think of. Alright, so... Alright, here we go. Let's see what we got here. Oh, shit, that's all local stations for that paper. <laughs> <laughs> see, that, that's how... That's why I would look. It's, uh... Because TBS is local. Okay, here we go. Here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Alright, uh... No What's this? The no uh, this is the Hattiesburg uh, American uh, TBS. Oh, they're playing movies all day. Okay. <laughs> uh, Fighter Squadron with Robert Stack was airing at that time. So there you go. They could have fit it in. <laughs> Let's just say that it could have been done. But anyway. Starcase crowd was announced at 64,500, which would be the largest indoor sports crowd ever in Japan. Getting a realistic gay figure for a Tokyo Dome card is hard because every show one hears so many figures, it's hard to get the truth. The four largest live gays in purpose history, no doubt, WrestleMania 6 in Detroit, 3.4 million U.S., and the Tokyo Dome shows from November 29, 1989, February 10, 1990, and March 21, 1991. Ranking them in order is quite more difficult. His given figures ranges from just over $3 million to $3.6 million at Starcade's Live Gate. The Latin figure might be an all-time record for pro wrestling, and it works to trail only the February 10, 1990 Tokyo Dome. During the week, Dave was given numbers ranging from $3 million to $4.2 million for that Tokyo Dome show. Since each fan from above these cards, one official of the company told Dave the gate for Starcade was $430 million yen, $3.16 million in the exchange rates of the day, is a record house for Japan. However, the dollar was worth less last February. He said the U.S. dollars, the February 10th card, even though it drew slightly less yen, may have been a little ahead in dollars. Either way, the gates for both shows is pretty close. For a live crowd, this, it ranked third behind WrestleMania 3 in the 86th match in Toronto between Hulk Hogan and Paul Orndorff, and just had the Sky Dome crowd from last year's WrestleMania. From a historical perspective, it would be the largest crowd for a show from the old National Wrestling Alliance, breaking the 38,622 record set for a 1961 Pat O'Connor Buddy Rogers match, and breaking a live game record set in 1984 for Rick Flavor's carry of an air at Texas Stadium of $402,000. So it's the first time a show from the NWA reached the kind of business levels that WS record houses have achieved. But the reality of the situation is that this was really a New Japan show with the NWA guys as invited guests, not NWA promotion. Dave counted 109 empty seats. Counted himself for the egg dome. <laughs> Although at 1 30 p.m. that day, there were no more tickets available except from the scalpers from the building. You know, if he's being that meticulous, maybe he should have two factor authentication turned on on his Twitter. <laughs> but if he's counting all the seats, wouldn't he know that it wasn't seats 4,500 people? You would think so. Because these numbers were all inflated. Super no vacancy full house. <laughs> Hilarious. Wait, I forget. What are all the different tiers? No vacancy, super no vacancy, super no vacancy, full house. Isn't there a fourth? 
Uh, that's about it, really. Yeah. So what do, what are they supposed to mean? I mean, no vacancy means what? All seats filled. Super no vacancy I, means they added seats, and super no vacancy full house means standing room sold out. Yeah, basically, I guess. Something like that, at least. Something like that. Yeah. Well, the last tour ended the week before, on March 14th, for a full house of 3,200 in the Goyos Rainbow Hall. That's Black Cat, Pentony St. Clair, Ken Kobayashi, and, and Mahamaguchi, Pete Hirosato, Tatsushigoto. Seishio Yagi and Kengo Kamura beat Masakarisu and Bad News Brown, Masashi Yagi. Masahiro Chono Masahiro beat Mike Enos and Brad Ringens. Norinaga Penjushin Liger. Liger did the shocking job here. Apparently made people think Nagami could beat him for the title at the Dome Show. Well, no, that's not really why they booked that. But Onaga, Onaga beats Liger for the title anyway, coming up in their next match, singles match. Uh, Muda beat Mike Rotunda, who's in between WC and WF. Tony Hall may beat Larry the Villain in a horrendous match. Who the hell is Larry the Villain? <laughs> This match did not air on television. <laughs> Who is Larry uh, the villain? Oh, God. What's that fucker's name? Oh, shit. Hold on. I'll find it. Um, it's <laughs> He has no profile cage match. Um, this is a time when they're bringing in different fighters. Oh, so you think this is a different style fight with Halma as the boxer? Yeah, yeah. But would it it be Larry the Villain? Wrestling Data has it Larry the Villain. But, and again, no profile? No profile. They're bringing in all kinds of tomato cans for these guys. Hashimoto, too. Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke kept the tag titles being Azuka and Koshinaka 24 minutes, four and a quarter stars. And Toshi Fujinami of Vader and Super Strong Machine, three and a half stars. Come on, ProFight DB. Let's see. Does Larry the Villain have a profile on there? Uh, he does, but no information. Well, there you go. Again, match never televised. But it was a different style fight. Uh, yes. Let's continue our Dave in Japan segment here, as now Dave is going to the rest of the shows around. Although the primary reason for heading to Japan was to see Starcade, they left California one week early to get a chance to see three other promotions live. Unfortunately, All Japan didn't start their tour until the 23rd, and between Cauliflower Alley and WrestleMania, not to mention putting out this newsletter, there's no way to stay. Yeah. <laughs> Cauliflower Alley was the Saturday, so two days after Starcade, and then Mania was Sunday. So Dave came back immediately to attend those events. As mentioned last week, from the standpoint of seeing great wrestling card, the highlight was not Starcade, but the All Japan Women's Show the previous Sunday afternoon. But let's go in chronological order. March 14th, Cork and Hall for Universal Lucha Libre. This Lucha Libre promotion, which has gotten pretty popular among videotape traders, mainly because of its top star, Yoshiro Hasai. Unfortunately, Hasai was the big story here, and the real story occurred when maybe half a dozen witnesses a few hours before the show was scheduled to begin. Asai was practicing a new move on the top rope and blew out the ankle he had originally injured one year earlier. He was carried from the ring, but ne- never considered a second miss in the show. It was a rare non-sellout for wrestling at Cork, and with about 1,700 fans in the 2,000-seat building, with tickets priced from 45 down to 30. The reason they couldn't fill the building is because this group had Cork and booked five times during a one-week period. 
including a precedent setting two shows in the same building from the same promotion the previous Sunday. Yes, overkill. The car on the eighth, which is a blind draw, captains would draw teammates at random, which basically Technicos, Faces, and Heels, Rudos were teammates all night. Six-man tag title tournament and evening show on the 10th, which had the finals for the newly created UWA World Tag Titles. Both sold out. But the three shows failed, too. About 20 minutes before the car was going to begin, they brought out Carol Maedo. You support Fall Japan Women was kicked off for breaking rule number three of the big three no-nos of that group. No drinking, no smoking, no boyfriends. And now works as the secretary in this group's office and wrestles on their cards. This group runs week-long tours a few times per year. The next tour will be June 5th to 13th, and again, a tour will take place in September and December. But the future depends on Asai, a small 5'6 170 pounder acrobatic performer who is as dedicated to the business as anyone. He spends most of his time not wrestling by watching videotapes of wrestling, but has that spirit, which is almost cultural. They refuse to acknowledge injuries, which leads to injuries that never fully heal and shortening of careers. Boy, is that ominous. In addition, since he's gained popularity in Tokyo, the major groups are interested in him. The biggest rumor of the week was the SWS offered to triple his pay. So it'd be about fifteen hundred per per week to jump. Guess what happens later? <laughs> yes, you guessed right. Back to my Ada did a twenty minute entering interview seven with her answering questions from fans in the audience. People asked her about other promotions and wrestlers in other countries. All Dave could think about is what did the US equivalent of this be? And if a group would allow us wrestlers to do something like this, what kind of questions would the audience ask? Yeah, in that era, that would have been something to have something like that going on, have a wrestler in the ring before the show answering questions from the fans. Yeah, (laughs) especially under these circumstances, which I wonder how known it was. To the fans who would go to a Universal show, probably well known why she was done with All Japan Women. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that if it was an America and the women's wrestling America in that time period, that questions would have been uh, <laughs> awkward. Oh, yeah. For more on that, get Medusa's book when it comes out in a couple of weeks, I guess. So who'd you fuck? That's <laughs> a question. Uh, <laughs> no, so I heard you got five for fucking. Weren't Medusa and Kayru a tag team at this time? Uh, I don't know about if this time in particular. If not shortly beforehand. So I actually, I wonder if that this is covered in her book, maybe. Especially since it seems more and more from what people are saying that have read it, that it it's almost like it's a history of misogyny and wrestling and, you know, through the lens of her career. Yeah. But anyway, speaking of Kate Rue, and then we'll talk more about her situation. <laughs> Carl made up in Riku Yoshida in a women's match up in the show. Yoshida works for all Japan women who had a show in suburban Tokyo that died, but was loaned to this group. Started slow, but turned to a great match, lots of hot moves. Exciting near falls and dives out of the ring. Had great heat as progressed. Made a woman ability to both suplex three and three quarter stars. It's such a weird situation because she's working for a promotion that has a working agreement with all Japan women and all of her opponents are from all Japan women. Yeah. So she's still wrestling most of the same people as she would if she was still on the all Japan women roster, just not as regularly. And you know what? Given the schedule, uh... This probably worked out very well for her long term. Yes. I mean, she's still a great wrestler a decade later and beyond. So. Yeah. I mean, you could even argue she was a better worker a decade later. Yeah. Oh, boy. I see what's next. <laughs> Black Power. John Bonello, the former Michigan, Ontario wrestler referee who now lives in Mexico City. No. Pinned to Masa Michinoku. 
The crowd loves Michinoku's underdog jobber similar to Momota Mania two years ago. Power one to close on top rope, two and a quarter stars. Okay, I guess I should remind everyone where it appears this came from. Go ahead. The actual person under the mask is... Okay, so Luchamaki says he's Black Power on Black Power 2, which I still don't really understand the deal with that. But his real name is Johnny Vanelli Guzman. Guzman. I don't know why. Pause there. So presumably a Japanese magazine or something had him had his name spelled out in a way where people read it as John Vanilla. And Dave, even watching him live, thought it was him. So there you go. How would you think this guy, with the way he works, was John Bonello? Wasn't John Bonello already fairly old? He looked older than what he was. Yes. But but it's Lucha as well, because you have old guys in Lucha, so. Still, just a weird, like, I get how it happened. But Dr. Lucha or no one like that knows better? I don't know. Like, th- this one is at least, it's understandable. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure it's the way I, we think it happened. But again, Dave is seeing him live and still saying it's John Bonello. So that's a, that's a weird thing. I don't know. Yeah, as well as, uh, <laughs> I guess Dave's not uh, hanging out at all with the Lucha guys when he's in Japan. Maybe not. The Cowboys, Silver King and Tejano, beat Bulldog Punish KT and Coolie Crush SZ. It was advertised as a Caballero contra Caballero match, but before it took place, the promoter said Universal Board of Governors had a meeting and rescinded the stipulations. Okay. The hardcore fans in the balcony were laughing at Cat Kong about who was on board. Who's on the board? <laughs> there are all sorts of great moves in this match. But Punish and Crush, who work hard and prove a lot, are out of their league with these guys, and it was obvious. Cowboys were around five foot six, bulky, but they're like a Midnight Express caliber team as far as synchronized moves and ability. Silver King, in particular, who's the son of Mexican wrestling legend Dr. Wagner, is a super worker. The match first ended with a double count after about 15 minutes, and the crowd got pretty upset, chanting, Pinfall, Pinfall, which was as the wrestlers expected because the double count out was simply a tease. They restarted the match, which got a great pop and kept going one fall, near fall to another, until Silver King pinned SZ with a splash off top rope at Tejano at Superplex SZ. The power and glory finisher. Fans flood the ring with money after the match. Three and a half stars. KT, of course, is Gato, and SZ is Chato. Yes, although I never understood why Gato's initials are his real name, but Chato's are not. Maybe they wanted to be S. S. Uh, what's Chato's last name? A- Akiyoshi S. A. Yes. So I don't know. That's his reason. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, sounds like a hell of a match. Fans throw money in the ring at Corken Hall. How about that, huh? Yeah, got to be one of the earliest instances of it. Paraguayo and Monkey Magic Wakita be Super Brazo and Solar. Brazo, who's the younger brother of the famous Brazo, is about five foot four, but about as fat as Jerry Blackwell. Dave means he makes Dusty Rhodes like a marathon runner. <laughs> Not really a good match, but Bra- Brazo's on top row, ready to splash Wakita, but Pedro pushed him off. Pedro came on top and landed back first on Brazo, then tagged Wakita, who splashed Brazo on top row for the pin. Finished kind of an upset, star on a quarter. And Monkey Magic Wakita being Super Dolphin. Yes. Was Super Brazo doing Porky's shtick yet at this point? 
Um, I don't know if he was doing it here, but he was doing it in, in Mexico. Okay. Um, definitely the least of the Brazos in the ring. Ooh. <laughs> I got to think about that one. Um, he, if he's not the worst, he's right there above the, near the worst. That's for sure. I mean, Platino is fine. Brazo Platino was okay. Cybernetico is Robin Hood. So, yeah. I mean, maybe his work as a Brazo is not as good, but he's a great wrestler. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah he's, I mean, he's definitely up there. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't see how you'd make a case that Platino or Cybernetico are worse. Eh, depending on the night, I guess. Yeah, depending on the night. Yeah, it. <sighs> Robin Hood was the smartest of the younger brothers, I think, to go with a different gimmick for a while and try to make his name that way. Yeah. Yoshiro Sai, Kendo, and Iyo Santo won two out of three falls from Los Temerarios. Jose Luis Feliciano, Shua Guerrero, and Black Terry. With a side hurt, this match was nowhere near what it looked like on paper. The Rudos attacked Asai's bad leg with a chair, so fans who didn't know he was hurt in practice would understand why he was limping so badly. The whole first fall consisted of the Rudos beating on the Technicos, and the one weakness of the Technicos in Mexico is they take bumps different from the U.S. and Japan because the rings in Mexico are like concrete rather than padded, and it looks like crap. First fall is actually awful. Ending with Feliciano pinning Kendo with a bad, bad splash. I guess bad splash. I don't know. Kendo pinned Guerrero in the second fall, which was better since Kendo, who is not great at working on a match, but does several patented entertaining spots every night, did his spots. Santo did one hot move where he, one guy gave him a back body drop, and in a minute he flipped over and gave another Rudo a flying head scissors. Third fall saw the badly injured side open and do one spot after another with no regard to his ankle injury, including spots that only made his ankle that much worse. Crowd popped big, but knowing his injury was so entertaining to Dave. The third fall was very good with the Rudos taking great bumps for the Technicos. Santos really gone downhill since last year, as he basically did two hot moves and almost nothing else. But all three Rudos on the floor, the three Technicos did simultaneous dives over the top rope to their, their foes. However, aside because his bad ankle didn't quite clear the top rope with his dive, his instep hooked the top rope, and instead of flying out on the foe, he fell straight down headfirst to the floor. Somehow doing the movie, managed to make his angle even worse, blew out his knee, and cracked his head on the floor. So he got back up and got in the ring and did one hot move after another with Feliciano at before, before finally pinning him. Dave said this performance reminded him of the Olympics several years ago with the gymnast with the broken leg still competing on the rings for his country. And Dave thought that was Japan and did the big dismount landing on a broken leg. It's seemingly gutsy, but he had better off taking a night off and saving the career. Two and three quarter stars. This year aside, man, I mean, wow. I mean, I don't know if you get, is it a difference between, you know, bravery and stupidity or whatever, but the dude put it out there. Yeah, I mean, this sounds uh, Cody, Helen esque Yeah, but this is more dangerous because it's, it's a, you know, a leg. Right. Like an ankle. Co the, Cody says, and... I don't know how much we're supposed to believe him on this, that he was basically told it was already a complete tear, so if he could handle the pain, he was fine. Yeah. And he was clearly in immense pain, but he got through it. Yeah. And he it, says now he told it, and he says now he regrets doing it. Yes, it was very stupid. It's going to go down quite possibly as the defining match of his career, but yeah. Um, this, I mean, this he could have easily hurt himself and someone else.
Yeah. But this doesn't even seem to nag him much long term. No. Uh-huh. You know, of all his injuries, you know, the end injury that ends up ending his career originally is the elbow, but that's because of the box surgery, and, you know, he's a lot of shortcuts and, you know, very little flying when he wrestles these days, but, like, he's in good shape. He still has speed and snap to him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. El Signo, get this UWA World Live, we talked about making Gran Hamada submit. Give him out of credit. He's the booker and top technical of the group, and he did a submission job that nobody expected. They did a lot of good technical wrestling, which impressed people. Didn't get a lot of heat. They worked the holes ground on the mat. Sidney did an awesome dive through the ropes out of the ring. Hamada did a move where he was on the apron, jumped in the middle rope, dove off backward, and did a full flip like a somersault, like a moonsault, and splashed onto Sidney on the floor. And then one there fall to another before Sidney used a neat little submission hold they had never seen before. Everyone's stunned to see Hamada submit three and a half stars. So wait a second. The Booker gets to do the Silver King dive, and Silver King doesn't. <laughs> well. Cool. Well, also, Dave clearly does not know yet it's the Silver King dive. No. You know, <clears throat> like, with how big of a tape head Dave is, it's kind of interesting that he's not pointing out, like, we don't normally get to see these guys on tape because they're UWA guys. Yeah. You know, by this point, he's either about to watch, start watching or watching MLL TV regularly, or at least has access to it. But, you know, this is... UWA guys and UWA guys we don't get to see them wrestle except for when they show up in Arena Mexico from time to time or they're wrestling in Japan yeah and the main event saw Los Brazos beat Los Vianos in three falls but first falls man the comedy with a few okay wrestling spots in with El Brazo making one of the Vianos submit to the upside down surfboard hold second fall saw Viano Tercero Prim Brazo de Oro Diamond Headbutt and they seem to have a basic routine for having worked together a lot but the Vianos as wrestlers were pretty bad and there was a little heat in the match. Third fall, saw Brazo de Plata pin Viano Quattro with a splash off the top rope. And just for the finish, the Vianos did three consecutive dives out of the ring. Just no heat at all, starting to quarter. Probably shouldn't have went with that match as the main event. way it sounds. I get why they did, though. And But here's here here you go. Let's Well, let's get into it. The problem with the show was putting Asai out too early. After seeing Asai, while the crowd wouldn't be so impolite as to leave, it was obvious they didn't really care about anything else. He had to die in the finale, then get a reaction. There you go. They announced the next tour from June 5th to the 13th would have Hamada, Hasai, Kendo, the Brazos, Barthel Morgan, Bestia Safahe, Cochido, Super Dolphin, who may be Monkey Match at Wakita under a hood, Marlin, Blackman 1, Blackman 2. Those Brazos, particularly Brazos de Plata, are so entertaining to watch. So, yes, yeah, they, they, pointed, they pointed out that, it, yeah, maybe Hasai should have been the main event, but it is what it is. All right, and next, All Japan Women, Sawara Gym on March 15th. This is an All Japan Women's show about two and a half hours out of Tokyo. Small building, more like a skating rink than a gym, with no balcony. Crowd's about 400 fans. They missed half the show and really didn't watch the matches as closely for notes as watch, just watch the intensity of the work. Dave had never seen an All Japan Women's spot show before. Those of you who have seen the women on tape know the work rate. In a small town with a small crowd, the only difference is no juice and no dives out of the ring. The pacing is just as fast, and the flying moves in the ring is just as plentiful. The one thing about these women, is it said before, but you're really up close, and you can really appreciate it, is the conditioning of them. By that, it doesn't mean they have low body fat, because they're actually encouraged to get heavy, so they have more padding, so the bumps don't hurt as much. But even though the girls are all fairly thick, with particularly big legs, they can work forever and never even take a deep breath. It's like watching sprinters. 
because everything is at a sprinter pace. Go out, run a mile sprinter pace, never tire, and never breathe heavy. There's no TNA. In fact, it's just the opposite. Almost pure athletics. Well, as pure as it can be and still be pro wrestling. The last three matches saw heels win clean. Ashikong and Mika Takahashi over Manami Toyota and Yumiko Hota. Bice Kamara over Tsushu Yamada. Yamada had the same basis while injured that failed Tommy Young, and she's been warned a bad bump could paralyze her. Yeah, she works like that isn't the case. She had to be carried out of the ring after a capture suplex. Work next night anyway. Ooh, I didn't and know Bull that. Bull Nakano, Kyoko Inoue, and Tomoko Watanabe won two out of three falls from Akira Hokuto, Suzuka Minami, and Mariko Yoshida. All three bows between now stars. After the show, even before showering and taking the bus home, the prelim girls were taken down the ring and cleaning up the arena, and the main eventers were in the lobby selling their gimmicks and signing autographs. Okay. few interesting things here. Um... I believe, I mean, it pretty much has to be, and, you know, thinking about the timing, I believe this is the trip where he shares a cab with Debbie Malenko. I forget if they were on the same plane or what, but with someone from the office, and I forget if she had brought promo photos or what. But in the state, she had been wrestling in a two-piece outfit to show off her abs. And the way Dave's explained it is that, you know, going at the trying not to sell sex appeal thing, the office rep, whoever it was, was like, you can't do that here. When they see your abs, they start thinking of your boobs and your butt, and then they're not thinking of you as a wrestler anymore. Here's the thing, though. I mean, are, I don't know when the, if it started by a, how they started doing the photo books, how they started oh, doing the, the videos. I don't think that's till mid-90s. Huh? No, obviously there's a shift. But at the time, you know, that, you know, this is probably influencing Dave and him explaining this, but it is genuinely how they are selling everything. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the thing about having more padding on the bumps, I mean, that's a thing that happens. I mean... I've talked to a few women in the business who started out much skinnier than they ended up being and realized that was not going to be tenable for a number yeah. of different reasons. Like, they weren't even they weren't unhealthy for just regular activity, but for pro wrestling, it was just not the way to go. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, so now we go to Cork and Hall on March 17th. This was Sunday. It was a unique day, and the All Japan Women had a show at noon, and JWP had a show at 6.30. Both cars were not only sold out, but had standing room in every conceivable spot. The All Japan literally ha Women had literally had people hanging from the rafters, including several people uh, hanging from a ladder in the back. That doesn't sound good. JWP announced this crowd at 2,500. Dave estimated 2,300. All Japan Women announced 2,500 was legit. JP show, which didn't sell in advance, was priced 37 down to 22. Walsh fans' price was 45 down to 18. After the show was excellent, the evening show was also very good, but the two cards in one day is just too much wrestling. <laughs> they really didn't see how the city can support this much wrestling, although it continues to do so, and the business isn't hurting any. But over a 10 day period, this made seven shows. It doesn't include the Tokyo Dome the following Thursday. Walsh fan at Corkin on Saturday and Sunday. And WWF at the Dome, which is 100 yards from Corkin, the following Saturday. Dave hadn't seen Corkin, all Japan women at Corkin, since 1987. The heyday of Chigusa Nagai and Dump Matsumoto. And things have certainly changed. 
Very few of the girls are still around because they get rid of the girls and hit their 26th birthday. The Rio Tatana, who was half the Jump Bob Angels and in WF at the time, had a retirement match on this show. Bull Nakano was a star then and is now the world champion in a long main event holdover from the Chagusa area. And it's all new girls and it's all new fans. Chagusa drew the teenage girls who dressed like her, wore a fan club jacket, screamed over her like she was Madonna. But it's different now. Many credit the upswing and all Japan women's group to the time period last summer when Aja Kong and Bice Kimura working for Universal. This is Universal's Lucha Group, and when they draw the hardest core fans because its names aren't familiar to the general public. Women's wrestling was always stigmatized in Japan as something for women to watch. In 1987, the end of the day, he saw a card that was better than anything the men's promotions were doing, and better than any card he'd ever seen in the United States. There were few males there and almost no hardcore fans. One subscriber who went was amazed at how good the card was, but still said it was something for girls, and Dave doubted he went back. The stim is gone now. Crowd's young crowd, about half hardcore male fans, they're simply to see the great matches, and have teenage girls who screamed and cried over their favorites. Gone are also the concerts. It's just wrestling now, and these are the most expensive hardcore fan, expressive hardcore fans around. JWP was formed in 1986 and always going out to a different audience. They tried to attract males at a time when all tra- Japan women tra- attracted very few. While there were people who attended both shows, Dave Guest's number was very small. JWP attracted a much large, older crowd, men in business suits with wives and girlfriends mainly, or both. Uh, they weren't maniacal about the show, although there was heat. There were hardcores in the balcony, but pat- not patted to the level all Japan did. All Japan showed Dave with Ray Basically's Eagle to Russell Warren Phoenix is the best live show he's seen so far this year. Yeah, I mean, that's the difference between all Japan 80s women and all Japan 90s women is the difference in the fan bases. Yes. Now, you're still in an in-between period at this point. Hence, them being able to pack in more fans, too, because there's still a lot of younger girls. Yeah. But... Well, I guess that means this... I guess that also means, that goes to answer my question earlier... The more male fans get involved in the fandom of Japanese women wrestling, then we start seeing more sexualization of the talent. And also, and I don't even necessarily mean this as a shot at him, probably also a sign of Rossi Ogawa having more booking power, too. Yeah. Because, you know, look at how he did things at least early on in RCN and then, of course, later with Stardom. Yeah. Where... Did you watch any of Damian Abraham's show, The Wrestlers, when it was on Vice TV? No. Um, There was an episode about stardom. And, I mean, she was open about it, basically. But, you know, Chris Wolf, being there as a foreigner, was particularly uncomfortable as a gay woman. Being involved in, you know, kind of how stardom kind of asks you to deal with the male fans and encourage them to buy you gifts and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like that's almost one of the reasons I still, I still, I think hesitant, hesitate to watch stardom maybe as much as I should just for the quality of the wrestling, just cause it's kind of like, off-putting in a way that some of the other promotions aren't. Well, some is working for them. They're number one. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the extra marketing budget and all that from Bushy Road buying them clearly has helped. Yeah. So. All right, Dave starts show proper here. Tomoko Watanabe 
Kazuhisa Ito in 344 with a power slam. Just one move after another to sprint speed. Actually, almost too fast-paced to keep up with as a spectator. And the girls weren't experienced enough to work that fast and not be out of sync at times. Star and a half. Shitose Sumikaki beat Little Frankie in four minutes of a midget match. Sunaki, who handles tickets for the group and only wrestles once or twice a year in Tokyo, is a midget. Frankie, who is about two feet tall, is a dwarf. Wait, was All Little com- Frankie really only two feet tall? He was a short fellow. All comedy. Frankie's somewhat famous from the old days with this group, from the 70s, when he used midgets, and he was one who would spit on his head like a top. Yeah, so if you've He's ever o- seen that gif, everyone, that's him. He's older now, but still does the spots where he spins on his head, and the crowd understands that much. Frankie won with a splash off top rope in a super fast three count, half a star. Then we get Debbie Malenko and Riku Yoshida over Mayumi Yamamoto and Sakashigawa at 1230. With Malenko and Yamamoto a normal ass suplex. Malenko, real name Debbie Killian, wrestled in Florida as Debbie Drake and made her debut on this show. She's working here full time for at least the next six months, similar to Medusa or Chris Noir, others who are basically Americans trained to be Japanese style wrestlers. Malenko's built as a protege to Malenko's and not as a sister or daughter, and she was trained by them. Although she's a very pretty girl, she's costumed to completely emphasize any sex appeal and is trying to be put over by her knowledge of submission moves. It's almost as if he was told this in the car right over. <laughs> it's definitely a different world over there. Yoshida worked most of the way and was pretty heated matched throughout. Hashigawa did a cross body block from the top rope outside the ring on Yoshida. Then Yoshida did the same move on to her, but Hashigawa landed wrong when catching Yoshida and cracked her head on the floor. She couldn't get up and in the ring, but since I wasn't supposed to be finished, they stalled for a while, which is the only thing that hurt the match. Hashigawa was carried out, and Yamamoto agreed to work handicap style against both of them before getting pinned two or three quarter stars. Okay. Um... Yeah, it's interesting the way he talks about it as a different world, because, like, yes, the promoters treated it as TNA, and certainly there was a degree to which kind of the, how do I put this, I guess the Billy Wolf era was kind of, like, surface presented as serious wrestling, but some of the draw was, you know men who wanted to see women in bathing suits, so to speak. I I don't feel like the presentation of women in American wrestling in this era, though, is really that. Like, I don't, like, they're not taking it seriously. But can you really say that anything from, like, you know, rock and wrestling through this point has the women pushed as a TNA sideshow? No, 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 no. Like only, only a maybe. I mean, and you know when glow, you like that. But glow, but glow's also kind of supposed to be for kids. It's we. That's a we. It's a weird one. But yeah, I mean, as nothing far as like, like proper wrestling promotions. On. Yeah, like nothing like it would be later on. Yeah, I can't even think of who would like. I guess you could say to a degree, Misty Blue. And even then, it's not that. It's not that bad. No, especially for someone who had been in the porn industry. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like, I get what Dave's trying to say, but like, it's not necessarily the contrast he's saying it is. I know. It's contrast, but it's not that contrast, I don't think. Yeah. Like, Wendy Richter was not pushed, as, and I'm not saying this as a as an evaluation of how she looked or anything, but in terms of how she's marketed, she was not marketed as a sex symbol. They did the count. They did the, that, that poster, but that was really it. I mean, yeah. 
I don't know. You mean the poster where she's kind of holding the belt diagonally? Yeah, in a, in a bathing suit. Was that even a WWF poster, though? I mean, they sold it. It was WWF? Okay. Yeah. And, okay. So, was Carl Malenko also... Well, he had been... I just realized he was in Battle Arts before he was Carl Malenko, so obviously they only built him as a protege. Yes. Uh, also, how weird is it that back-to-back -back, both of the American women who lived in the dojo and were regulars were both named Debbie? Yeah. And well. one was, as I've learned, a quarter Jewish, but the other was sort of a fake relative of a Jewish family. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, let's continue. Bat Yoshinaga pinned Karo Ito in a <coughs> kickboxing match built for a newly created triple, <coughs> excuse me, WA World Martial Arts Championship. All the prelim girls have been in tournament since January with kickboxing matches. They're legit 100% shoots. Are they? Days I should have purpose having the girls do shoots to teach them courage and get them that heart and toughness. Ida was much smaller and mainly got pounded the most of the way. There's no heat in this out of place for a person environment because it wasn't dramatic. <clears throat> Ida got a bloody nose third round. Had holding the gloves for several rounds. They were heavily padded gloves. Both girls were noticeably tired around the fifth round. If you ever boxed, you understand what kind of condition these girls are in to go five rounds for getting tired holding up the gloves. It ended with a decision, and this was the final match of the tournament. You can't rate a shoot by work standards. Okay, so in this case, Dave is saying also, like, it's a shoot because they are not working this to be dramatic at all. Yeah. Maybe some of them were shoots, but I get the impression it was overstated. Probably. In her retirement match, Naria Tateno pinned Takako Inoue in just under five minutes. The reaction between streamers and fireworks was like, this was the 4th of July, when Tateno came out of the dressing room. Just incredible. The streamers were two feet deep in the ring. Basically, Tateno did all her famous spots in one with a double arm suplex into a bridge. The idea is that Takako, who's in some way similar to Tateno six years ago, is supposed to now follow in her footsteps. The best part of the show took place after the match was over with Tateno's retirement ceremony. Every fan, when they came into the building, was given an envelope which contained old jumping by manuals gimmicks, stickers and patches, and discount coupons for drinks at the bar Tateno's the manager of. They saw his double Masami ceremony in 1987. This wasn't as emotional. With Masami, everyone in the building was out there balling, including all the wrestlers. There were a lot of people crying here, but on that level. Some younger wrestlers and a few veterans came out to give Tateno flowers, and they were crying, including out-of-character Bull Nakano. But unlike most retirement ceremonies that are sad, this was kept up beat with the announcer making a big deal. This isn't retirement. It's simply graduation. At that point, several retired big names in the past, including Jaguar Yokota, who many feels the best female wrestler ever, Jumbo Hori with her daughter, Linus Oscar, besides occasionally racing cars, is now a part-time wrestling journalist with Gone Magazine, Crane Yu, Mitsuko Nishiwaki, and Dump Matsumoto came to the ring the big reactions from the crowd. Itsuki Yamazaki, her longtime partner who works for rival JWP, was in the aisle, but didn't come into the ring. At that point, Asuka, Dump, and Jaguar attacked Tateno, each giving her clotheslines. This wasn't an angle. It's something cultural that was good, but it was hard to figure out at the time. Oscar gave her a giant swing, her favorite move. Then Dump gave her a finisher, and Jaguar in street clothes with cowboy boots came off the top of her with a perfect drop kick to the face. Then they all hugged and cried, and the crowd cried with them. <laughs> She was then carried out on the shoulders of the retired girls as the ringside fans handed her presents and bouquets of flowers. Okay, this isn't retirement, this is graduation. Makes it pretty clear that she knows that she's 
returning with one of the other promotions you know, soon. And she does. She's with LLPW when they start the following year. But that's such an odd thing. Yeah. Um, they have everybody just beat her and everybody hug. Yeah, I mean, also, Devil Masami's retirement ceremony was more emotional because she had been one of the top stars in the promotion and Tateno had not. Yeah. You know, and it goes back to what Dave was talking about earlier. The Jumping Bomb Angels did not get over nearly to the level that the promotion wanted them to. No, they were they were over probably more here than they were there. And the explanation, you know, is that the fans had been conditioned to not be as into the more traditionally feminine and girly wrestlers. Well, let, let's be honest, Bix. Lanny Poffo n- knew the deal. Oh, he yeah, he knew why they weren't over. Yeah. And look at those pretty Japanese girls. Um, See? But that that also might have helped them in the U.S. But yeah. the Crush Gals were such a big deal that to have them be so different at the, while the Crush Gals are still around, you would think it would help, but it didn't. Um, also, interesting, I did not know about the connection with Takako. Speaking of sexualizing wrestlers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm guessing that uh, she was her mentor in the dojo. Yeah. That I mean, would make sense. Um, God, it's weird when you think about it, too, just how quickly things change. Because the photo books start in, what, 95? Maybe earlier. Yeah, it's 91. So it's, what, three, four years? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, like we said earlier, it's leaning in more into drawing men and also probably also Rossi being one of the bookers. Yumiko Hota, Estamarino, Cynthia Moreno, B. Escomita, Mimishimoda, and Toshio Yamada by Kana, 1108. There she's about four foot ten, but an incredible worker. Her sister's pretty green, but wasn't in much. Tons of heat and all action, but one spot after another with a let up. Match would have been better than four stars, said there was some missed moves. Esther did a moonsault that put Muda to shame. Hoda did a stiff kicks and is brutal and very good work at what she does. And then with great brawn all over the building. And Esther snuck in the ring and beat the count three and three quarter stars. Then we have Suzuka Manami catching the Pacific title from Manama Toyota in 1636. Basically a super match which combined lucha high spots, brawling, complex suplexes, and submissions. All that's from bell to bell and super throughout. And then one near fall after another, one great move after another, and he was deafening throughout. After doing every move in the book, Toyota missed the moonsault, Manami tied up her arms, then German suplexed her over her head and got the pin for the title change. Four and three-quarter stars. You know, with all the historical context and stuff he's giving, kind of surprising that he's not mentioning how Toyota's supposed to be the new Jaguar Yakota. Yeah, well, I don't know. Next, Aja Khan pinned Akira Hokuto in 1031. Kong shaved her head clean ball backstage for the show. This match doesn't sound good because of the size difference, but Hokuto's done unbelievable making a match. Kong jumped her early with the famous oil can and chair shots, and Hokuto bled from the opening bell. Kong bit the cut and make it bigger. They brought all over the ringside area, cleared out elevated ringside, and even went to the lobby. Aja dominated to missing a crossbody ball from the top rope outside the ring at roughly 220 pounds. Hokuto made the big comeback, cooling the off top rope, doing a full flip midair outside the ring, a la Liger, and landing back first on the Anja. 
Hokuto has so many injuries, she's wrapped up like a mummy, particularly her knees, shoulder, and elbow, but she works like she's impervious to pain, doing suicide maneuvers like they're nothing. Colin juiced. Colin then held Hokuto upside down, climbed the ropes, jumped off with a power bomb. Hokuto kicked out, but Colin splashed off the back of the top rope and pinned her. After the match, Colin grabbed the mic and said, Worst effective. I never thought you were this tough. But after the match, I realized just how tough you are. Unless you and me form a tag team and we'll get rid of Bull. Hokuto grabbed the mic and said something to the effect of, Fuck off. I don't need your help. We just got to expect a huge pop. Four stars. <laughs> Outstanding. And it got me thinking about, too, like, there's never been anyone like Akira Hokuto. Like, the combination of protecting, protecting, projecting danger, but also the graceful high-flying, and the brawling, and the toughness, and the character, like, she blended a lot of different things, and made it work so well that probably nobody else should ever try to emulate her. Yeah. She's a hell of a talent. Hell of a talent. Absolutely. And this is Main event. after she broke her neck four years earlier. Yeah. Main event time. <clears throat> Bull knocking on Kyoko in a way beat Mika Takahashi and Bice Kimura in 1907. Although Bull is talented, her role is similar to that of the movie monster who sells nothing and her foes just beat on her and beat on her and she just stands there. No Superman's combining great brawling with liberal uses of gimmicks. At one point, the ref's back was turned. Aja ran in and picked up Bull on her shoulders, and Bice came out top with a starlight bulldog headlock. One unique spot was two girls saying Bull for double suplex, but she blocked it and simultaneously suplexed both girls at the same time. Finished off knocking up Pentakahashi with a shooting star leg drop, which has to be seen to believe. Basically, the Bobby Eaton leg drop on top rope is with a full somersault flip midair, thus ending in a near four-hour wrestling car that wasn't one minute too long, four stars. I don't know why he's calling it a shooting star leg drop when it's flipping in the opposite way but yes it's basically just took all scorpios uh dropping the bomb right no no, no no this is no this is just a somersault leg drop oh okay all right. drop the bombs moonsault leg drop and then that's right jason cross is crossfire is the shooting star leg drop yes that's right that's proper right. Yeah. all right jason I'll quickly go through jwp since less memorable the crowd was 70 percent male a lot older as mentioned earlier First dimension involved wrestlers almost none of you would have even seen or heard of. The best of which was two stars. Well, nobody would have yeah. even seen them because barely anyone in the States is getting the tapes and they don't have TV. Well, yeah. Then Rumi Kazama and Kyushizuki and Mami Kitamura, who worked is worked in Phoenix, the Eagle Sawai, Yukari Osawa, and Rumi Yasuda when Kazama pinned Yasuda with a German suplex 1312. After the match, Sawai whipped Kitamura into a guardrail so hard they actually broke the rail. Three and a half stars. Miki Honda had a mixed match against Chang M. Chang, a Taekwondo girl from Korea, chained by Lee Gaksu. Chang knows how to work because it looked like it almost legit, which it wasn't, but it was entertaining. Honda basically had her brains kicked in most of the way, crying, knocked down time and time again. But finally came back and used a crooked head search for submission in 232 with a third round, two and three quarter stars. Chang M. Chang. What a name. That sounds like a name that someone would come up with in the States, in this era, to give to an Asian wrestler. Yeah. It would be very inappropriate <laughs> yes. in that context. Yes. Chang Gim Chang. 
Dong-dong. Uh, the Scorpion won the UWA and JW Women's World Junior Heavyweight title, beating That was Yumi not Chris Osan. saying that. That was Chris's point, is that someone who made that up as a name would be saying that. That's what, yeah, that would be saying I just right wanted there, to make yeah. that clear before anyone says anything. Yeah, exactly. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I could definitely see uh, like a stereotypical name being like Ching Chong Chang or something like that, you know? I mean, that's the way things were. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a decade after this that Jimmy Yang is Yun Yang. Yeah. Which is not his real name. It's James Yun. Jimmy Wang Yang. Jimmy well, that, Wang Yang? Was, that was worse. <laughs> well, because remember, too, remember, he was originally going to be Jimmy Wayne Yang. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, it's also we're not too far away from having a bunch of uh, white dudes uh, performing as Wang Chung. Uh, the Scorpion won the UWA and JWU Women's World Junior Heavyweight title, being Mayumi Ozaki in twelve fifty two. Scorpion's a pretty good worker, but they had missed moves and weak transitions in between the hot moves and flying. There was lots of heat at the end when Scorpion got out of the power bomb three stars. Who is Scorpion here? <clears throat> uh, not sure. Oh, then we had this one. This is great. Shinobu Kandori beat Denise Storm in 20 seconds in the second round in what was built as a mixed match. Storm is a Minnesota-based girl wrestler for the LPWA. Was built as a boxer and came in with the gloves. When the match started, the first thing she did was take off her gloves and use a power ball. <laughs> well, nobody believed the boxing gimmick at that point. Kandori put her in a few submissions for a win with a half crab. Very short, but Storm sold a couple submissions like they were more than legit. She's very big, particularly for the girls in this group, who are mainly very short. One star. Okay, I checked. Uh, Scorpion's Cutie Suzuki. So, of course, it was good. It was a Cutie Suzuki Mayomi Osaki match. How did they get um, Denise Storm here and Big Business Brown isn't around? Or what was the name? Not Boogie Brown? Boogaloo Brown. Done? Boogaloo Brown. Oh, get what? Him, with the him. Prince of Wrestling in Shinobu Kandori's corner? <laughs> 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 oh, I'm sure he would have had had a lot to say about Chang M. Chang. <laughs> uh, he, yeah. uh, oh, no men, you say? I know how you get around that, and then he'd make his uh, cunnilingus <laughs> gesture at the camera again. <laughs> oh, he would have been great here. <laughs> Oh, no, he would have cut promos about how we're the promotion that. <laughs> no, this is the promotion that lets them actually date men. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, oh yeah, yeah. was it, who was it? Was it Matt Farmer that replied to one of my tweets about that guy a while back? And I don't know if it was Matt. It might have been someone else. I was like, you know who that is, right? And I was like, no, and then never explained who it was. Yeah, LPWA, Denise Storm, she was part of that crew with, um, uh, what was Brown's tag team? Oh, Charlie Haynes. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait, that was, what's his faces? Uh, wait, Boogaloo Brown in LPWA, who was his tag team? Yeah. It was, uh, the black girl and the white girl. Oh, Black Venus and someone. Yeah. (laughs) Lord, have mercy. Miss A and Hon Saido kept the Pacific Coast tag titles being double Masami and Izuki Yamazaki. At one point, Yamazaki did seven straight drop kicks. Miss A and Saido both do really strong kicks. Masami pressed down Saido at one point. Good all the way, but this was a long show that followed an even longer one. Still, the crowd's pretty heated. They did a double count on 1455. You know the reaction to that? Well, to that. So, restarting the match, traded really stiff chair shots to the noggin on each other. 
before Saito pinned Masami with a sunset flip to keep titles, three and a half stars. And Miss A, of course, is uh, the future Dynamite Kansai. And they know that both these shows were taped for home video and not for television. So there you go. Yeah. I really do need to watch some of the original JWP, though. Definitely seems like it's different. You know, especially the earlier stuff, like when Jackie Sato's around. Chang M. Chang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't, don't give me more ideas. Don't encourage me with Prince of Wrestling promo ideas. <laughs> that, 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 that would end badly. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. All right, well, it's in the first half of the show, which is almost the whole show. So I had some great <laughs> 1991 commercials. We've hit the halftime segment. Where we actually have a halftime segment this week, so we'll make up for last week. Where we'll have uh, the Patreon, of course. Talk about that. We'll plug all our other things, including Fight TV. Fight TV and IWTV. We plug all the great uh, independent wrestling uh, streaming services. And then we'll come back with... Uh, the rest of the show we'll go international have a little germany in there a little england a little mexico we'll have that then we have we'll have the u.s indies talk about some stuff going on there and then wcw and wf will share the same section for the very first time on between the sheets all that more after the break la law will be right back Burger King takes on America's favorite breakfast. Today, the same old thing, prepackaged and efficient, same old, same old. At Burger King, we've got the new sausage breakfast buddy sandwich for just 59 cents. It's eggs and cheese with spicy sausage, all on a little buddy bun. It's definitely not the same old, same old. The new sausage breakfast buddy for just 59 cents, only at Burger King. Now, for a limited time, buy a new breakfast buddy and get a free Schick Slim Twin disposable razor. Call me The Subaru Legacy with full-time four-wheel drive and anti-lock brakes. Since the next guy is capable of almost anything, shouldn't the same be true of your next car? Oh, boy. I'm Jeremy Irons. American television is a vast wasteland of violence and mediocrity. I'm drawn to it like a moth to a flame. That is why I'm hosting Saturday Night Live. He's a lawyer who's won. There are many roads to justice, young man. He's a lawyer who's lost. You blew them! But he's a lawyer who's never given up. We can still deal. Now, Jack Shannon, the lawyer the New York Times called the first hero for the 90s, returns. Jack's back. Shannon's deal returns on NBC Saturday. Action. Class Action Rated R. Now playing at theaters everywhere. Like I show you now. on the paper. On the paper. Yeah, no, come on back. Come on back. Kids introduces training Good. shoes. On the paper. On the paper. No, I said on the paper. Kids, they feel good. You don't need a new one. I think we should talk about this. It's not that expensive. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about it. No, I won't. 
Keds introduces debating shoes. Keds, they feel good. Mrs. Butterworth, let's make a commercial for your light syrup. You say my light syrup's rich and delicious. Then you say it's delightfully thick with almost half the calories of my regular syrup. You really do talk. <laughs> Me? Boring? Why, I'm notorious for stirring things up. Lowry's garlic powder. You're not cooking without it. A dangerous woman hiding a stolen fortune leads Hunter into a deadly romance. A two-hour mystery, Angel on My Shoulder. Then it's the unbelievable season finale of Dark Shadows. Which lives will be lost and which lives spared? See how it all ends. The season finale, Dark Shadows, following a two-hour Hunter mystery, starting at 8, 7 Central, on NBC Friday. It's an all-new Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson with the Robert Gray Band and Yakov Smirnoff, followed by an all-new Late Night with Catherine O'Hara and Rudolph Nuria. When a woman marries a man... I'm asking you to spend the rest of your life with me. Even the perfect man. She also marries his past. Anne was an extraordinary mother and wife. She marries his family. His shots. For what? She had an abortion on Tuesday. Oh, my God. She marries his problems. Is there anything I can do? Please, just leave me alone. Cheryl Ladd must reach down deep for the strength to survive changes. Daniel Steele's best-selling saga at NBC event... Sunday, mothers against drunk driving. They're raising close to forty-two million dollars a year for a good cause. But how is all that money being spent? Tom Brokaw has the story on expose. Then, if you talk on these phones, your private conversations could become everybody's business. Jane Polly tells all on real life right after expose Sunday. Good evening, I'm Lynn Ganser. Coming up on your 24-hour news source, a horrifying mid-air collision of two Navy jets today is looking even grimmer tonight. On 6 News at 10, we'll tell you about a last-ditch effort to find survivors. A local soldier from Operation Desert Storm has arrived home safely tonight. We'll take you to the celebration. And President Bush responds to the beating of motorist Rodney King in Los Angeles. Those stories plus sports and weather on 6 News tonight at 10. All right, we're back. We've been joining those great 1991 commercials as we move to the halftime segment of the show. We'll begin talking about our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets, where we have already started recording our latest show, which is a look at Iron Mike Tyson's Road to WrestleMania 25 years ago. And uh, like I said, we've already started recording it. We've uh, pretty much got the whole month of January done so far, but uh, what a show this is. As, uh, we talk about the negotiations of uh, how he came into WWE. We talk about uh, him showing up at the Royal Rumble. We talk about Cold Stone. And, uh, of course, the big angle the night after on Raw. We have a disconsolate Vincent Mann being interviewed on a local TV station in Fresno after the show. And, uh, I mean, that's the clips we have, but we got other discussion, too, about... Tyson and the Nevada State Athletic Commission and how that's going to go and what's the possibility of him actually wrestling on the on WrestleMania because Vince is the one talking about being a special referee. The angle is talking about being a special referee on Raw, but there's other talks going on as well in the media. So 
We'll have that, and plus we'll have, of course, everything else that went on after January. We'll have, of course, Tyson uh, joining DX, quote-unquote, and all being part of the master plan him and Austin have, and we'll have that news conference at the WrestleMania where they talk about that, which also mysteriously goes away right after that. And is well, and is also not talked about before either on Raw. Yeah, so we have a we got a lot going on. So definitely well worth it to listen to, folks. Five dollars a month at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Gets you uh the opportunity to listen to that, plus all the audio we've done in our almost seven full years of the Patreon now. So uh, everybody go check that out. Lots of hours there, lots of good stuff. So uh, I know a lot of people go back and re-listen to shows. So uh, we definitely appreciate that because you may have missed something the first time you listened to it. So go back and listen to it again. I know it's a, um, a valuable tool for people on the road, driving on long trips. I've heard that. So, uh, yeah, everybody go check that out. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. $5. Now, you can subscribe to a, to us for a dollar a month, which gets you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment. Then you got your annual, which is a 50-40, if I'm correct. For the $5 tier, yes. For the $5 all, tier, yeah. All of the tiers and, are uh, 16% off if you do annual, yes. Yeah, so all the tiers are available in, in that regard, so there is that. And, of course, you got the $25 a month, which is just, you know, for the month. But you get the opportunity to pick a show for the week, which we have uh, some Patreon shows coming up. Now, uh, when you want to do that, make sure that you have a couple of shows in your mind, just in case somebody may have uh, that week you want picked. Or it could be something we've done already. So, um, yeah, please uh, check the archive on the Red Circle website and and see if uh, the show that you – may want to do is something we've already talked about. Um, if you have a question, get with one of us and we'll, uh, let you know if, if, if uh, there's any issues with, with that, that we can help you with. And, uh, yeah, we just want to make it, make it easier for you to get the show that you want done, done. So, uh, follow the protocol on the Patreon website to get that information to Bix and then we can get it done. Remember, uh, 30 day rules in effect, 30 days from your show that you want to do. 10-year rules in effect, Wednesday to Tuesday on the current timeline. So do all that, and we should be able to take care of you. And $50, I'll just send it for a segment of that show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose. That's patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, who do I think this week is our new and or returning patrons? All right. We would like to thank Jason Corbin. Thanks, Jason. Ryan Morris. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, this one, let me try to figure out what this name is uh, to pronounce it correctly. If I get this wrong, please don't kill me, anyone who's offended, because it's, you know. I ask me, remember, please feel free to send in some kind of pronunciation guide. Uh, but it's Edward, I'm going with Gersevinsky. G-R-S-E-V-I-N-S-K-Y. We'll see. I have the easy way out because all I gotta say is thanks, Edward. <laughs> David Sharp. Thanks, David. Logan Henry. That's a great indie wrestler name. <laughs> yeah, it is. Thanks, Logan. And of course, he is followed by another great indie wrestler named Brad Shane. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Vinny Rodriguez. Oh, that's a good name too. Thanks, Vinny. And Chris Powell. It's Chris. 
So we thank uh, all of you new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have come and gone, come back again. Thank you to all the ones that's been there from the beginning and never left. We thank all of you, anybody that supported us for being part of patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, this is the first time because we didn't do have time last week. So because of how long that fucking show was. But this is our first time of doing our uh, double streaming service plug on our halftime part of the show. So, Vix, talk about what's going on in the world of Fight TV and IWTV. All right. Which do you want me to start with? Well, let's start with IWTV first. They've been uh, with us for a long time, so we, we'll give them top billing here. Yes. All right. IWTV coming up on the live streams this Week. Some of the notable things include a uh, Sean Henderson Presents show at the H2O Wrestling Center on Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, includes kind of mostly the usual suspects. It includes a uh, Ugly Ducklings versus Bang Bros, the tag team you can't Google, which I think is officially their nickname now, among other matches. Uh, I pressed the wrong button there, so it didn't take me to the next tab. Uh, Limitless has a show on Saturday night at 7.30 Eastern. Main evented by Between the Sheets' sa- sa- favorite. Between the Sheets' favorite, Two Cold Scorpio, taking on Desmond Cole. Among other matches, including Becca versus Rachel Ellering, uh, Anthony Henry versus Andy Brown, and more. Uh, Beyond Wrestling has a show on Sunday at 3 Eastern that includes... Uh, Miracle Generation defending the IWTV tag titles that they very unfairly won from Violence is Forever against Above the Rest, Joey Janela against Bobby Orlando, and more. And also on IWTV, Prestige has a show on Sunday at 7 Eastern. And if that sounds out of the ordinary for you, that's because that is their East Coast debut in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Hmm. Yes, at the... House of Independence, the venue that GCW and CZW used to run. So they've got, among other things, for the prestige title, Alex Shelley defending against Alan Angels, Josh Alexander against Speedball Mike Bailey, Minoru Suzuki versus Rob Martyr, Killer Kelly versus Masha Slamovich. Oh, this is a more loaded top-to-bottom show than I thought. Uh, Jordan Oliver versus Alec Price, Manders versus Akira, Sonico versus Trey Lamar, and... Since I'm at almost the whole card anyway, the Brick City Boys versus Shot Through the Heart. So, typically loaded uh, prestige show for their East Coast debut. Well, it's not their East Coast debut, it's their... Because uh, they did do the Restival show in December, so it is their first non-Destination uh, Weekend East Coast card, I guess would be the way to put it. But loaded show there. Suzuki even, cause since I guess he's... Yes, he's already. I was going to say he's already in the country for Mania Weekend, but he doesn't really have much in the way of Mania Weekend bookings. I think he's mainly doing signings, right? I haven't seen a whole lot. Yeah. Well, he's also doing karaoke, but that's a whole other story. So oh, that, yeah. That's that. Um, so if you're not already an IWTV subscriber, use code BTSPOD when you sign up, and you won't get a discount, but we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So that's Independent Wrestling T. TV code BTS pod. I think there's also a link in the. I think there's a link that auto fills it in the show description, too. Now on Fight TV, tinyurl.com slash BTS fight. And because it's them, yes, it's F I T E. So tinyurl.com slash BTS F I T E. 
on the Fight Plus subscription service this coming weekend. We've got shows from friends of the show, as both AIW and Black Label Pro are running. Yes. So it's good to have Fight TV in the fall so we can talk about our friend shows again. Yes, and uh, also this weekend, I guess what are now the signature shoot sports shows on Fight Plus, Bare Knuckle Boxing and Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship both have shows. Hmm. Now give me one second to pull up the AIW and Black Label Twitters, though, because uh, the Fight listings do not have, uh, whatchamacallit, do not have the Matches. match list yet. Yeah. Me no, that they gotta get step the game up on that one. Come on now. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it never happens at IWTV, but I don't so. know. All right, so let's see. So AIW, please have a listing with every match. Please have a listing with every match. I mean, a tweet with every match, an image. Uh, that is Friday at. Let me make sure I, have, I always forget. Are they? Yeah, they're Eastern Time Zone. So yeah, that's Friday at seven thirty. And as I go back to Twitter to see if we actually have a full line, it's called 21S6SYXX, because Sean Waltman will be appearing in some form as I try to find the actual lineup. As I scroll through Twitter, just for individual matches, I see Filthy Tom Lawler versus Wes Barkley. Uh, this is a pre-show match. I don't know if that's airing on Fight, so I won't mention it. And... Oh! Dominic Garini versus Timothy Thatcher. I knew that was happening. How did I forget about that? That should be quite the match. Uh, yes. Violent art versus gentle art. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I think it'd be a more friendly Timothy Thatcher crowd on this show than it was in AEW. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, uh, PME taking on Josh Prohibition and Matt Cross with Josh Prohibition's career on the line. How about that? If euthanasia lose. And is there anything else announced other than Sean Waltman doing a meet and greet? I'm assuming, you know, as with the usual meet and greets, I'm guessing he does some kind of segment. But looks like that's what's uh, been announced. And you know, as I go to the Black Label Twitter, should have seen one that has everything listed so far. Uh, okay, no, that's about a premiere of something in the archive that was not let on, bleh, not yet on the, the Fight TV archives. Is this the right show? Please be the right show. No, this is April 7th. <laughs> oh, God. Please, everyone, pin your next show, the full lineup, to the top of your Twitter, for the love of God. Especially if you listen to this show and have been on this show. Please, for the love of God, pin the lineup to your latest show to the top of the to your Twitter, preferably a t or or a tweet that is the beginning of a thread that has the full lineups of all of your upcoming shows, along with the listing of shows. All right, yes, observe this brother is the name of the uh, show that's coming on Saturday night from Black Label Pro at East Eastern, including uh, the Chop and Roll Express of Filthy Tom Lawler and Brian Alvarez against the Bang Bros, Joshua Bishop versus Vance Warner. A uh, second-generation wrestler who I will not dignify by naming versus the one they call Manders. Carlos Romo versus Alec Price. Is that Pillman Jr.? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we have reasons. Uh, Carlos Romo. Well, I can say his name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't deserve it. Uh, Cole Radrick versus Sky Blue in an intergender match. Uh, and the BLP Rumble. 
So yes, tidyurl.com slash btsfight. That's tidyurl.com slash btsfite. And subscribe to Fight Plus and you'll get to see those shows as well as, you know, following weekend, all of GCW's uh, Mania Weekend shows at The Collective. How many shows are going on this year? Because the the Mania, I mean, I I don't follow independent wrestling like I used to, but it seems like there's not as many shows this year, indie shows at Mania. Or am I missing something? Or you mean aside from the collective and WrestleCon? Well, even that. I mean, you, you, I remember the collective used to have like fucking twenty shows and shit. You know, I mean, I'll tell you. All right, so the collective wrestling Twitter. I'll give the number of shows and then I'll tell you some of. What's I mean, I just up don't. Overall, he, I, I just don't spot. hear anything about it. So. I mean, not high spots. The boys are wrestling listing that includes the high spot shows. Um. All right, so your lineup for the collective this year. I'll just. It is 12 shows at the Ukrainian Culture Center. Ukrainian Cultural Center. I don't know why. I could, oh, no, I'm sorry. I was looking at last year's somehow. That's stupid. I should collect, click on the actual page instead of yes, we're in going to the first now. tweet that came up on Google. Uh, come on, show me the full listing of shows. Again, pin that to the top. Come on. Jesus Christ. As far as number of shows, I want to say, though, they're doing four a day, so about 12, and then they're doing uh, Indie Hall of Fame at, at WrestleCon instead of at The Collective on the Sunday. Um, okay, yeah, let me just go back to the Voice of Wrestling listing of all the shows. So, okay, yeah, I'm looking. So, oh boy, it starts on Wednesday afternoon with Dark Arts Entertainment running a show at 1 p.m. local time. Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the same building has Pandemonium Pro Wrestling TV Volume 4, The Best Damn Thing, uh, at 5 p.m. local time on uh, that Wednesday at the same venue. Uh, there's a launch party for the Vince McMahon book at 8 local time. Uh, they don't usually... Oh, right, there's going to be wrestling matches. That's why it's listed in this part of the thing. A launch party for the Vince McMahon book, huh? Yeah. Um, he won't be there for that. No. Mike Romania has a show in Hollywood at 8 local time on... Yeah, so this is all still Wednesday. <laughs> uh, Jesus Christ. I'm still on Wednesday. I'm seeing multiple shows. Uh, okay, yeah. Santino Brothers kicks off the collective at 11 local time. Uh... I have no idea what Crimson Crown Wrestling is, but they're running at 11 a.m. local time. What the fuck? I, oh God, so I'll say this. Maybe some companies will benefit from GCW running a fairly small building and the main show selling out. I don't know. Um, they've got a show. Circle Six has the Lindsay Snow Can Kaiju Cannabis Cup as part of the thing they're doing. Uh... GCW has Bloodsport 9 at 4 local time. Opposite the Mark Hitchcock Memorial Super Show with multiple wrestlers on both shows. Uh, Vinnie Massaro's Pro Wrestling Combine, another Circle 6 show, all Caribbean wrestling. We're still on Thursday, Chris, and we haven't even gotten tonight to deep into the evening local time. Well, I, so you get the idea. Yeah, but man, there's not a lot of buzz about these shows. Oh, well, maybe I mean, everybody in the eye. <laughs> I feel like Spring Bake and Bloodsport are leading it because of Ibushi. Yeah. I'm surprised Super Show doesn't have more buzz. That feels like it should, especially with the lineup they have. Uh, 
Which, by the way, yeah, if iSpots has referral codes, let us know. Because they've got, yes. uh, among other things, Necrocasta's Ultima Dragon, Shigeru Eerie versus Speedball Mike Bailey, you have Delphi Kingo defending the AAA Mega Heavyweight title against Black Taurus and Commander, Tokyo Joshi Pro 10 1 Tag, and more. Uh, actually, yeah, what other promotions? Because they're running at the Globe, the PWG venue. Uh, well, of course. Right, there's also the New Japan and Impact deal, which is going to be an iPay-per-view on fight. So if you want to buy that, also get the discount. You know, you, not discount, I'm sorry. We get the referral if you do that, too. It doesn't just have to be the subscriptions. You know, tinyurl.com slash btsfight. Jesus, there's a lot. Right, so yeah, DDT is going to be at GCW, and DDT versus GCW is going to be at the collect. Well, at the collective, I should say. But Tokyo Joshi Pro is going to be at the Globe with high spots. Prestige is also going to be with high spots. So there's just a ridiculous amount of shows. I mean, this this looks like New York level, but without the public transit. Okay. Well, I was. I mean, I just just haven't heard much. That's why I was asking. I mean, even about. The, I know. I agree. Like even about the stuff you'd expect. Like you'd expect Prestige to have more buzz. Um. We'll be I mean, curious. the most I've seen is on WrestleCon. So, okay. All right, yeah. well. I hope everybody does well. Yeah, and Prestige has a loaded lineup. They've got uh, Taya Valkyrie, Miyu Yamashita, Masha Slam Vita. Well, who Kong. is she? I mean, she's working for everybody by the WWE now, so, I mean. Masha? <laughs> or Taya? No, Taya, yeah. Well, she signed uh, with like, AEW. What, what was it I saw is that like, she's on AEW, she was on AEW, uh, While holding titles uh, in Impact, MLW, and AAA, yes, yes, <laughs> and the Indies. Now, granted, she won't have to drop the title in Impact because they were doing the Freebird rules thing well, for the yeah, knockout tag titles. But the I think the others, because right, she's AAA Women's Champion and MLW Women's Champion, and she is going to work the MLW tapings. But yeah, you know, AAA, I assume with AEW is shaky, but we'll see. Um, so yeah, she's had an interesting run. <laughs> but anyway yeah out of nowhere <laughs> yeah I mean we, plug, we plugged all that stuff oh no we didn't do the uh, VPN which may or may not be worth using with one of these things but well yeah. you see yeah, you, yeah it may it's worth using at all times that's what I'd say well yes but, yes so come on now we can't we can't uh, discount none of our sponsors here picks come on now we got to uh I'm not talking about discounts. I'm talking about stuff you can't get without, if you don't use the VPN. If you're outside, of, unless you're outside of US and Canada. But, but anyway, all right. Today's episode between the sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. You've been using Cognito mode, your internet provider, storing your browsing data, many times even selling it. But Private Internet Access can help. Private Internet Access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mag. If you sign up with Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's go over that, shall we? We'll offer you three different packages. You get your regular monthly package for eleven ninety five a month. You can get a yearly package at three dollars thirty three cents a month, or seventy, or excuse me, thirty nine ninety five a year. 
Or you can get the deal. The number one. The numero uno. The best deal we offer. Three years plus four free months at $1.98 a month. $79 for the first three years. Yearly thereafter. That's 83% off, folks. The best damn deal there is. And why is that? Because that's so much more inexpensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you can take advantage of the private internet access 30-day risk-free challenge. Try up 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just return it for a full refund. So you get that, you ask, well, you go to tiny, excuse <laughs> pardon me. What, what is a, a tiny it's a, No, no, no. It's a, a private internet access.com slash between the sheets. I just had a brain fart. Privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try the best damn VPN on the market completely risk-free. I had a complete brain fart there. All them tiny URLs you mentioned earlier it flustered me. Even though you have it in front of you. <laughs> it just, I know, it just, it was flustered me. All right. So there you go. Privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets. All right. Next week on Between the Sheets. We're going to go back to uh, 1995, and we're going to talk about Dave Meltzer in Japan again. Oh, it won't be like this week's show, because um, the main show he, we'll be talking about next week with him is uh, Dave attends the All Japan Women Yokama Arena show, which is a major show. So we'll have news on that, plus some of his other uh, visits in Japan. We have Bam Bam Bigelow and Lars Taylor and Howard Stern in WWF, which we don't have any clips of, sadly. We got the Raw before uh, WrestleMania to talk about. We got Men on a Mission. Apologize to the Smoking Guns on Challenge, or do they? They have being honest about one of their wrestlers outside the ring on television, which was a rarity at that time. So Is we'll that. Uh, this the one I'm thinking of, a wrestler who was no longer with the company being arrested? Yes. Okay. Uh, we got, uh, like I said, the Japanese stuff to talk about. We got Lucha, AAA's got some hot shows going on. An interesting time in their promotion as things are really about to start changing. Uh, we got the indie scene in the United States. John Arezzi trying to get AAA on pay-per-view in the United States. We got uh, the Gangsters being upset about the Undertaker being in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. We got pretty much the end of Jim Crockett in Dallas. And Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair's feud behind the scenes ramps up big time. So we have all kind of news on that next week on Between the Sheets. Plus... All kinds of other clips. So it should be a fun show. Next week, we're just me and Bix on the show as uh, we're going to finish up the Patreon next week. So there you go. So everybody go check that out. Next week on Between the Sheets. Or right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner. K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper BT Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix. Anything going on at Wrestling Inc. this week, Bix? Anything worth talking about? Let me refresh my memory real quick. Um... Let's see. Okay, well, I mean, I'm curious if you saw this, something uh, that I did write something about today as we're recording this. Did you see the Dave Schilling uh, Twitter thread about WrestleMania 35? The New Day thing? I mean, multiple things he talked about there. I saw some of it. So, people check that out if they have not seen it yet. Dave Schilling now, like, LA Times contributor, but was on uh, WWE creative team uh, for that last New Jersey WrestleMania four years ago. And um, let me read the exact wording. Oh, so he he was he was rewatching that mania and tweeting insider stuff, including 
pictures of like the band words list on formats he saved and stuff. And he when he got up to Kurt Angle versus Baron Corbin, you know, which was Angle's retirement match, he he tweeted when it was mentioned in a production meeting, the fans hated the idea of this match. Vince laughed so hard and said, "Fuck him." <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. And then for some reason, it was that story coming out that led to people contacting Fightful Select to tell them about the multiple attempts that Vince made to uh, break up New Day. Oh, yeah, so that's what I saw. Yeah. I mean, there was other stuff in there, too. There was a bunch of interesting stuff in the Twitter thread. It's worth seeking out. Um, but it, yeah, there was that. Uh, was there anything else that I, I feel like I'm forgetting something I found interesting? Um, I guess that's about it for now. Um, but anyway. Uh, oh, wait. What day of the week was that last week? When the trademark shit went down. Okay, that's why. That was, I think that was Friday. That was Friday evening after we recorded. That's why. <laughs> so should we talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I guess. So, and I'll just say this for the record, since there was people who were speculating. No, nobody connected to GCW tipped me off to this story. It was uh, just a reader fan was looking at one of those trademark aggregators and was looking at the one for AW Fight Forever and saw someone, something about someone possibly opposing the trademark and being concerned that that could delay the release of the game further. So I looked up the actual entry on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website, dug around the proceedings documents, and saw that, yes, GCW, uh, well, their lawyer, filed paperwork to extend the deadline to file an opposition where they did say that they and AEW are in settlement negotiations, which, boy, did that I mean, get th an interesting reaction. Well, does that mean there's going to be a settlement series now, another settlement series out of this? I mean, you stole that joke, but yes. Oh, somebody else did it? Oh, yeah, so at least two people. Oh, that shows how much I've been paying attention to that story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my understanding is it was mainly to extend the window while there were still potentially talks, but... Um, well, I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean... Uh, but the thing is, though, if you do that and you know there's a good chance of it getting out, if you know anything about the video game and how people are feeling about that right now, it's going to come off like you're trying to delay the video game, whether that's your intention or not. Eh, well, maybe it is. <laughs> I'm saying regardless. <laughs> but Maybe somebody has an axe to grind. I don't know. I mean, it's... <sighs> I mean, the other weird thing, though, is the AEW trademark, it's not for Fight Forever, it's for AEW Fight Forever, and it's only for video games, and I think shirts, with the implication that search for the game. It's not for just Fight Forever, it's for AEW Fight Forever, but they don't have, like, the whole, you know, wrestling exhibitions, etc. part to it. So, I'm not even, look, I'm a layman when I asked, no one seemed to have a great answer. I'm not even sure they even need to do this to be able to use the Fight Forever game for shows. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, whatever. Yeah, and uh, if you want to watch the original Fight Forever, it's you don't even have to pay for it on Fight. It's uh, it's still up there for free, as it was uh, originally. But if you want to check out other surrounding shows, of course, uh, tinyurl.com slash bbsfight. Oh, 
<laughs> uh, of course. Well, you gotta yes. get that plug in. Well, and uh, we didn't have time for app time last week, so we didn't talk about the show that I'm going to. As of we're recording this tomorrow, the uh, New York City show, but whatever. What, the New York City uh, GCW show? Yes. Time Slitters in action. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you won't get too much trouble. Oh, oh, what? What? No uh, GCW media scrum after? That's really just <laughs> me and Janela taking a picture well, after the everybody show. everybody on Twitter thinks you're a stooge for Lauderdale anyway, so, I mean... <laughs> I mean, you know I'm not, but there's reasons I'm not going to talk about... I, I won't get into the specifics of why it's you're, clear that I'm not, but... You're, you're, a, you're a GCW prov the media, according to some people. I... I, I, I there's a joke I would make to that, but I don't want the person to think I'm serious to say who actually is. So, I mean, look, uh, I, I mean, there's another joke I could make, and I think that person actually would get pissed regardless of the intent. So I'll save that one, too. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that one should be that one should be obvious. I mean, there is an obvious joke I could make there, and I'm not going to. It, it, it does entertain me at times how crazy people get over over you how uh how much they are obsessed about talking about you that is funny to me uh, yeah as a general rule it. as a general rule the other thing too is if they think some whether they think someone is or isn't my friend they, they seem to be wrong on both accounts if they think someone's my friend they're not if they think they're not my friend they usually are <laughs> uh, that's funny but anyway, let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, so now we're doing a different type of international section, like an 80s version of international section without Japan. Yeah, this is a different show. So, um, yeah, let's go to Germany now. A group of U.S. indie wrestlers, which includes the following. Tom Brandy, that jobber. Cat LaRue, Rusty Thomas, Misty Blue, Cindy Paradise, The Power Twins, Sika, Chris Duffy, The Cheetah Kid, and Johnny Rotten were shows from um, March 18th in Offenbach, Germany, March 19th in Mannheim, Germany, and March 20th in Karlsruhe, Germany. Tickets were priced as high as 400. Well, tickets were priced high, excuse me, as just 400 fans on March 19th produced a $17,500 house. The Billy Honky Tonk Man for the tour is a big draw, but it was announced he was injured by Chris Duffy and that his friend, the Star Warrior from the WF, had come for revenge. Star Warrior did an Ultimate Warrior act, and they say it was a lot better than Helwig in the ring, and he was even announced as the WWF champion. <sighs> okay. Outstanding. There's a lot going on here. Um, one, I did not know that Bob Roop ever did an Ultimate Warrior ripoff gimmick. Ugh. Because as we know, he is the one and only true Star Warrior. Um, <laughs> yeah, 1977. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm assuming Sika booked the tour, since he's the only big name. Maybe, but there's a lot of Savoldi types on here. Actually, wait, Chris Duffy... Wait, was Chris Duffy West Coast, or was he New England? He was Northeast. He was New England, okay. So, I mean, this is clearly someone Northeast based booking this crew that you know tom brandy misty and her crew 
Power Twins seek a... Because I think the Samoans are in Pennsylvania by this point, right? Well, they've been running in Pennsylvania, yeah, but I mean, they're still kind of in Florida, too, but yeah. Okay. Plus Duffy and the future public enemy. Like, obviously, this is someone Northeast-based booking this tour. And I always just find it fascinating, especially in this era where Wands, Otto Wands is so strong. When you have other groups come into Germany... Like this, you know, with mainly just indie, indies from the U.S. Like, it makes you wonder, like, yeah. who's the promoter? What's their goal with this? And how about those ticket prices, though? Yeah, pretty like, steep. I don't know what CWA is charging then, but the average ticket price, if we're going with 400 fans on this show, is forty three seventy five in 1991 money. American dollars. Yes. yes. So if we put that in the old inflation calculator, and we go to... Yeah, for the record, if anyone ever wants to know, it's the CPI inflation calculator is the one that does it down to the month. Yeah, 97.49. So in today's money, the average ticket price for this show was about $100 US. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I'm not sure what I make of that. I mean, there were people there willing to spend that money, you know? Not a lot, but some. Yeah. And also without but, big names, too, other than Honky Tonk Man. Really. I mean, current-ish big names. But enough to still have a good house, so... Hmm. Yeah. All right, um... Star Wars. Do we know who this was? I mean, who was even doing Fake Warrior in 91? I mean, I wouldn't think it would be a local, because that would be kind of exposing, in a way. Um, so it had, to be some, it had to be some indie guy. I'm sure, but who would have been was, around um, at this point? Was, uh, did, 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 did a renegade working at this time? Lord of the Jungle. I don't think he was yet. Uh, I'll start with Wikipedia, I guess. Just plain, just plain Rick. It says 92 on Wikipedia, at least, and there are two citations. Oh, it goes to Cage Match and Online World of Wrestling. So probably not Rick Williams. Um, oh, he would have been 26 years old at the time. Well, almost 26. And he is a Kowalski guy. He's from Marietta. No, but, I did not was, know that. but he was New England based it, as an indie wrestler. Yeah, he's New England based. Yeah, but I did not know he was originally from Marietta. Huh. Hmm. So it's possible it could have been him. Yeah. Um, checking to see, like, just far as far as your type. Was Jim Steele wrestling yet? Jim Steele, the earliest they have for him is February 92 in the USWA. So maybe not him. Who knows? But, I mean, he's... It's... This era USWA, so it could easily be his first matches... But it's also possible he's working at this time, so it's like, it's possibly Jim... Well, wait, where's Jim Steele from originally? Ooh, I don't know. Like, because I just can't think of anyone who's doing that at this time. You know what I mean? Uh, Jim Steele... The date on his cage match profile that they have him starting is... He's a Florida guy. Okay. Florida guy. He, he, uh, he was trained by Kern and Ron Slinker. So even though we're not sure he's working yet... Rick Williams is a better candidate, at least. Yeah, who knows? 
Maybe somebody will know and tell us. All right, let's go England now. All-Star Wrestling. They're going to show in London on March 19th. We have Chick Cullen over Mal Sanders, Steve Gray over Tony Stewart, Steve Regal over Skull Murphy, and Giant Haystacks over Pat Roach by referee stoppage. And of course, Giant Haystacks being WCW's Lot Ness. Yes, Luke McMasters. Yes. Yes. Yeah, perfectly solid looking card there, you know. I, I wonder what type of venue they'd be running in London at this point, too. Well, I mean, London, London's a big city, so I'm pretty no, sure. No, I know, but like, is this a little hall? Is this something bigger? It just it didn't say. So it just said London proper. Uh, all right. Well, let's go to Mexico, where things are doing much better than they are for Brian Dixon. Similar, we're in Mexico on March 15th through 17,100. As Emilio Chavez Jr., Herodas, and Canadian Vampire defeated La Fiera at Andina Atlantis in two straight falls. Emilio Pena Atlantis cleaning but falls up a single sign of match to doing them on the next week. Two and three quarter stars. Rico Mendoza, Black Magic, Norma Smiley, and Arraya Luzca Jr. lost to the team of Kamala. Satanico and Petoff, star and a half. Mascara Año dos Mil pin Conan with Paraguayo trip Conan, star and a half. And then Perata Morgan beat MS Uno in the Caballero Coach Caballero match, one and a half star. The finale went more than 30 minutes, but Morgan was so banged up it wasn't good until the end. Before the match, Morgan's two brothers, who are both Rudos, were interviewed saying they couldn't support Perata now since he's turned Tecnico. But as MS Uno won the first fall, the brothers came out to cheer for Perata, so in this match they turned Tecnico as well. Well, it is a brother. So, uh, yeah, 17,100 for the big hair match here. But you also have Conan and Mascot Noodles Mill underneath, so. Two big singles matches. And Kamala. Yeah. And this is just a hot company at the time, too. Yeah. Kamala. <laughs> this, I mean, what a 91 this guy had. So Kamala's working CMLL on a decent basis. He's doing multiple tours for all Japan. And then he goes to Memphis and he wins the uh, Unified World Heavyweight title. Yes. What a year. Memphis, CMLO, and All Japan, all in the same year. Man. Yeah, I'm pulling up Cage Ranch to see if there's anything else interesting. Uh, Pile Driver com- Promotions in Kansas City. There is a segment before Baba's comeback match from his injury at Budokan mm-hmm. in 91, where it's Baba, Rusher, and I can't remember if the other was. Kobashi or Fuji, one of the two, teamed up to face Abdullah and the Kamalas. And there's a segment backstage where um, one of the Japan announcers is interviewing Abdullah about Baba's combat match. Mm-hmm. So Abdullah's in his shirt and tie, and he's, you know, talking in the locker room with the Kamalas, who are not face painted up, by the way. Yeah. The, the whole time, Kamala, Jim Harris, is speaking in whatever you want to call it, he was speaking in. So, <laughs> oh, no, he was hilarious. Yeah, it was hilarious because he was trying to give strategy. He was giving strategy to Kamala, too, in this language that he was speaking, which is just fast gibberish, I guess, to be some sort of African language or whatever. Uh. And it was hilarious. Then Abby goes over there, and he starts speaking in, in, in the language, too, with him and stuff. Oh, <laughs> Having yeah. a strategy session. 
Yeah, I, pre- I prefer the uh, 2000s Kamala promos where he's Kamala in character but speaking fluent English. It makes sense if you see it. I'm not sure if I can describe it any other way. So to bring things full circle before we move on and talk more about Kamala, uh, Kamala worked in Europe for what appears to be the same indie promotion later that year in October. How about that? So he's working in Europe, too. Including Star Warrior. Well, how about that? Who does not have a profile? Um, hmm. And more more names on this one. You got S.D. Jones over Texas Hangman 1. More of a mix of women, Peyuli Leather and Rusty Thomas over Heidi Lee Morgan and Malia Hosaka. Stawaya and Cheetah Kid over Duffy and Johnny Rotten. Nikolai Volkov over whoever Mike Lane is. And uh, Klaus Wallace over Iron Mike Sharp. Oh, wait, no more. And Kamala over Tony A. Or, excuse me, Kamala double DQ, Tony A. Uh-huh. All right. More on CMLL. Egyptio beat Javier Yannis Jr. in a Caballero Coach Caballero match on March 16th, Mexico City. That would be so the Arena Coliseo, then. Yeah. Then Rio Mexico on the 17th, so three straight nights. Through 12,000 fans, as Mil Moscos beat Kamala in a cage match. Satanko kept the World Light Heavyweight title beating Sangari Chicana. Atlantis, Puerto Morgan, and Arroyo Jr. beat Medico Cecino Jr., Grand Marcus Jr., and Anja Blanco Jr. La Ola Lilla. No. Or excuse me, La Ola Blanca. No, the way. No, the way. La Ola Blanca. Yeah. La Ola Blanca. Then Su Volador, and, and Huracanca Sevilla defeated the Supremos and Fosgarera. Plus, they had a minis match as the opener. Then they have five shows on March 21st in honor of the 90th birthday of the promotion. Well, that's going to be 90th birthday of the founder, Salvador Luderov. Besides Sagrada and Perov having a title change, they had a uh, heavyweight title change there. Other big shows were in Acapulco, Satanica B. Sangre Chicana for the NWA World Heavyweight title. Arena Puebla, Octagon B. Fosgarera, non title match. Mexico City saw Katakan Lee over Kung Fu. And in Guadalajara, Conan over Pedro Aguayo. There's no AAA. So. They're able to run five big shows on the same day. And those are all Luderoff. With different main events. Right? With different main events. Um, Acapulco's Arena Coliseo, which they – that was like their building, but they didn't own it. That was not one they owned, but the other ones here they own. Puebla, yes. Of course, Mexico City. And then uh, Guadalajara. Yeah. Oh, so wait. Actually, wait. What was the fifth then? Cuernavaca. That's where Irina Isabel, that's where Sagrada Perov was, okay. which is, again, a, build, a building that they they had affiliation with forever. So that was one of their Thursday night stops. Mm-hmm. Acapulco was a Wednesday night stop. Yeah, I think this promotion... Well, of course, Monday, Guadalajara, Sunday and Tuesday. <laughs> so. You cut me off. I think this promotion's doing quite well at this time, don't you? Well, I mean, they got a lot of talent. So... Octagon is the most popular wrestler in Mexico right now. It's on a five-movie deal. Both Atlantis and Mascara Sagrado will appear in some of the movies. I think there only ends up being one movie, right? I think there's more than one. I know there's Lucha a Muerte with Sagrada. But Octagon's in multiple films. Okay. Yeah. So. All right, Monterrey. El Plaza de Toros la Monumental Monterrey. We have El Ninja, Panther, and Tigro over Fletcher, Lassa, and Robin Hood for the uh, trios titles, where Ninja filled in for Leono to uh, retain the titles. 
I'm sure that wasn't a bad match at all there. Lots of great talent in this match at this time. So, yeah. uh, Thundercats and Ninja versus uh, Arqueros Del Ring, certainly. Yeah. Nocopan for the Morenos. Serena Nocopan on March 20th. Mesa Gura and Tarantula Negro over Cata Brava and Principe Maya. Polino and La Bascara over Alemania and Perverso by disqualification. Black Power, not John Bonello. El Signo Universalist Mill over Black Magic, No Smiley, Catacolini and Pantera. And Arayalisco Jr. over Musco Añeros Mill by disqualification. When Universalist Mill ran in, Raya was beaten bloody. Should we make any jokes about who might have been under the hood as Perverso? <laughs> Uh, quite a few wrestlers, I'm sure, could could uh, get to that task with Mexico. And then we had the UWA, El Torreo, on March 17th, from the 15,000. As uh, Fatu, Samu, and Signo beat Los Vianos, 3, 4, and 5 by disqualification. When Fatu gave two low blows to Viano Cuatro, but Viano Uno ran in and attacked Fatu for, this, for the DQ. The Killer, Fishman, and Black Power over Enrique Pera, El Tejano, and Viano Uno in two straight falls, where Fishman and Enrique clean to set their title match for the next week. Those Brazos, Brazo, Brazo de Oro, and Brazo de Plata over Babyface, Negro Casas, and Engendro, best match on the card. And Zar, Quejos, and Scorpio over Blackman, Valente Fernandez, and Ultraman Dos Mil in your opening match. Oh, you know who Perverso actually was? Who was Perverso? And I think by this time is not under a hood. Uh, Angel Mortal. Well, there you go. How about that? Yeah, let me see. Did he have a mask? Uh, let's see. Lost man. No, the, the mask was on Angel Mortal. So yeah, it looks like he was not a masked wrestler as El Perverso. He was an unmasked pervert. Yeah, and Sir Joe here. Yeah. All right, let's go to the U.S. indie scene now. We start with Carolina Championship Wrestling, where they drew 503 fans on March 16th to Pageland, South Carolina, where they used Brad and Rocky Anderson, Manny Fernandez, be Wahoo McDaniel, Bambi over Paley Leather, and Wahoo in a Battle Royal. Hmm. So, there's your CCW show. Yeah, I'm sure Peggy got her heat back. I'm sure she did, probably did, too. Let's go to Matt Watch now. Bonnie Blackstone, Saturday Night Seven Hour Marathon Blocks, now called Saturday Night Superstars. It seems WAGA Channel Five, which now airs the WF Superstars Wrestling Show, complained about Bonnie using that name for the block. It's funny because WF Wrestling Challenge leaves off the block on WVEU Channel Sixty Nine. And also, it would turn out that they didn't necessarily have a good claim to the name anyway. But it wasn't WWF that's complaining, according to Steve Beverly. It's Channel Five. So the so the station is complaining about it. I mean, here's the thing: because though. the TV listings because... didn't say superstars are wrestling; they just had each show. I know that. So what are and they actually complaining is, about? And superstars are wrestling is not airing at the same time on Channel Five. It's airing, if I'm not mistaken, on Sunday mornings. Right. So. <sighs> Again, I guess I mean it's a local Atlanta thing, so I guess they're complaining about it. I guess so. You know, for that reason, for that reason. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I remember when that the name change happened, and uh, they had to do all kinds of new cryons and stuff for that. Kind of confused the uh, 
the the viewers there for a minute, but yeah. Hmm. There's some petty stuff, I guess, from Channel 5 at the time. All right. Uh, Eddie Mansfield, they were Watch. Eddie Mansfield and Steve Kerner attempting to revive Florida's Pro Professional Wrestling Federation. Mansfield operating under the Continental Lover promotion banner, along with Kern, are planning a TV taping at Universal Studios near Orlando next month. Kern's PWS suspended cards in January after the Tampa Sportatorium closed. A Florida law firm has been working with Mike Grab and Steve Kern on developing a new TV package, but Graham has since become a road agent for WCW. Mansfield once told Steve Beverly he would never be involved in wrestling again in 1985, so, it's, so Steve was surprised that Mansfield's been promoting shows. Mansfield had a couple of shows over the weekend in Florida with Kern and Dick Slater on top. Bozeman McGraw and Terminator also worked the card as well. All right, so we have a, a card here that's listed for the Spoilatorium, but it's not. So I'm just another building. From March 15th, where we had the Mighty Thor of the Coconut Kid, Tim Powers Parker over Master Blaster. So that would be uh, Al Greed, the dog. Juby Backlund over Lou Perez. The Terminator, Mark Laurinaitis, and Tim Parker. Wow, he's teamed with, with, uh, with both Al Green and Mark Laurinaitis. Beat Jimmy Rogers and Bull Lloyd best qualification, and Steve Kern over Dick Slater in your main event. Basically, the PWF is dead. Any type of hope is dead once Kern goes to WWF. And this, but this is what leads to Mansfield starting up his own promotion, IWF. Where the TV Universe Studios. Hmm. Interesting that they were originally going to be together. Yeah. But Kern gets the job and uh, Mansfield's on his own. So there you go. That's where the Smoking Guns got their first big push. What's your Mansfield's IWF? All right, USWA. Um, reason why this section is so short is uh, there's no TV rundown from anybody, and there's no TV on YouTube anymore. So, yeah. All right, so we got a Matt Watch. USWA has been given a one-week extension from its end date in the Minnesota Coliseum, but when Memphis State won their first run NIT game, Memphis Tigers had a game that Monday night instead, so that, that was used as a TV explanation for moving to the Pipkin building. Well, guess where they're going to be running shows at for the next few months? The Pipkin building. <laughs> So you only use that for one week. Results of the call sip. So actually Jackson beat Johnny Rotten. That'd be Sid's Johnny Rotten. Ice Baby, JC Ice Baby over downtown Bruno. Brian Christopher over Keith Roberson. The Texas Hangman or Billy Joe Travis and Freezer Thompson. A Grande Pesolero, Jeff Joe over Danny Davis. Steve Austin over Bill Dundee. And then the match that... Drew the house, which you don't have a house listed here. Jerry Lawler, Jeff Chair, Eddie Gilbert, and Jackie Fargo over Eric Embry, Dr. Tom Pritchard, the Texas Hayman, and Tojo, excuse me, one of the Texas Hayman, and Tojo Yamamoto were one of the Hayman sub for Terry Funk. Yeah. Lawler, Jeff Chair, Eddie Gilbert, and Jackie Fargo on the same team. Hmm. Picks. And I'm also curious why. Terry Funk would know show. Um, for what it's worth, they did 1600 at the Coliseum the previous week with Embry and Pritchard versus Jared and Gilbert in a Texas Death Cage match, and uh, Lawler Funk, where Lawler regained the title with Fargo as referee. Which was uh, this this match here, yes. Yeah. But Terry no showed, so who knows? Who knows what happened? 
but I mean, yeah. So the Dallas on the fifteenth, the other side, on uh, drew eight hundred fifty fans says uh, Night Train Jackson beat John Tatum, a grande pistol over Danny Davis with his feet on the ropes. Eric Emery over Bill Dundee hit him with a chain. Billy Travis over also calm by his qualification when Pistoler interfered. Dr. Tom beat Jeff Jarrett for the sudden title when Dr. Tom tried to use a load of boot. Jarrett got the gimmick from the boot and used it, but Eric Cameron interfered and hit Jarrett with the gimmick and put Pritchard on top. Steve Austin over Gary Young went after a rep up. Tom got the gimmick and KO Young put Austin on top, and the heels beat the faces with Embry, Pritchard, Calm, Pistolero beating up on Young, Davis, Dundee, and Travis in a Thunderdome match. Young hit the key and uncuffed himself, clotheslined Dr. Tom, and, closed, and cuffed him. They were the last two uncuffed. And the Bayface would be on the heels for five minutes. After the time was up, the face left the ring, but Emory locked the cage door before Travis and Dundee got out, and the heels did a four on two on them to end the fun. Oh, yes, Bex, the Dallas version of the USWA here in 1991. Yes, which we have very opposite opinions of. I liked it. I mean, fun. I li- when you have the matches with the key guys, it's good. But Michael St. John is terrible, and well, yeah. it's the same matches all the time. And Yeah, I mean, he wasn't the greatest announcer in the world, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was fine. That's some fun stuff on there. Part of the reason the crowds in Dallas have been up is an increase in Hispanics who are booing Pistolero. In his interviews, Pistolero's been challenging Mil Mascaros, so they may be bringing him back. Oh, boy. Well, here would be Mills Mascaros. <laughs> so, and Gypsy Joe is El Grande Pistolero. I mean, cutting promos, and I mean, you want to know how old he was or who he was here? Just by looking at him, I kind of could. Well, I mean, you wouldn't know it was Gypsy Joe if you were not a, a smart fan. Though. You could tell he was on the older side, I think. Though. Well, yeah, but again, like I said, you wouldn't know who he, who he was and how long he'd been wrestling by this point in time. Yeah, well... And, he- and hell, he just basically retired the last couple of years or so, so... Anyway, elsewhere in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. TWF. Gary Hart's lease on the Metroplex Arena ends a few weeks. Ends a few weeks, and he has to decide on whether or not to find a new building or not. And this from the torch, but... That's not true, because he doesn't have a lease on the Metroplex Arena. He works for the owners of the Metroplex Arena, who are the promoters. Well, tell or, that it's, Keller. or it's either the owners or the people who are leasing the building to use it as the Metroplex Arena. It's one or the other. But it's not the TWF. But the, the building also owns the TWF. Again, tell that to Wade Keller, because that's what he was told. Like, I could see this being true where it's the, uh, the <laughs> Campbell or whoever has a lease and it's almost up. And they're trying to figure out if they're sticking around or whatever or moving somewhere else. But it's not as written. Yeah. Besides, Wade's a child at this point. And who knows who's, where he's getting his information from. Well, maybe Freddie Fargo at this point in time, so there's that. Yeah, and, you know, the standards for younger wrestling media have gone down in recent years. <laughs> well, all AJ wrestling Awesome media. accepted. All, all wrestling media, well, in a lot of ways. Yeah. All right, so on, T- on the TWF TV show during our week... We have a behind-the-scenes look at uh, how the TWF works. Interesting little uh, segment here. So let's go to the clip. Are we about to hear from matchmaker Gary Hart? 
Well, he's part of it. Are you about to hear about bringing class back to wrestling? Um, I don't know. Time now to bring you up to date on the backgrounding of Texas Championship Wrestling behind the scenes. You may not realize this, but it takes about 40 professional people uh, to produce uh, a copy of Texas Championship Wrestling on videotape to bring it to you. 40 professionals behind the scene every week working many, many hours to help ensure that when you watch Texas Championship Wrestling that you will be entertained to the maximum. Uh, they all have spent many years specializing in television sports events, from National Football League football to Olympic coverage. People like our director, Earl Goodrich, who has over 30 years of directing to his credit. And many years ago, Mickey Grant and I sat around and, and, and devised in our mind how to bring a new revolution in television to professional wrestling. Like class? So then we in cooperation with Gary Hart and Fritz Von Erich, we produced a new style of television wrestling. And it was a sensation across the nation, syndicated around the world. Uh, we became known in, in the Mideast and in Europe and in Japan as uh, kind of the revolutionary new way to show professional wrestling. So Gary Hart, Mickey Grant, and I have come back together and we're going to re-revolutionize professional wrestling. Mickey's had a tremendous career in producing some outstanding films at the Coochie Tunnels and China Run. What? And now we'd like to turn our attention to <laughs> Mickey and to uh, Gary Hart as they discuss the new era. Uh, how do you compare Texas Championship Wrestling with uh, world class that you were an essential part of in the 80s? Well, like I was saying, our show was for the 90s. World class Championship Wrestling we developed in 1982. And um, it was a wonderful show for the 80s. And I think, unfortunately, some people are still basically cloning what we developed at that time. And uh, I think the kind of thing you have to do in the 90s, things are much more competitive. So I believe we have to be far more creative. I think that we also have to respond to the wants and needs of uh, the people of the 90s. Uh, the audience we had in the 80s, they're now in their uh, 30s and 40s. Uh, they have different wants, different likes. And at these particular times we're living in right now, at the beginning of 91, are very stressful. With a war situation, uh, people are looking for entertainment, which isn't fat. They're looking for entertainment, which uh, is streamlined and does the job for them. When they turn the show on, they know when it's over, they're going to feel better about life. As you had said earlier, Mickey, that uh, more highlight matches, uh, three matches rather than six matches, uh, what do you think of that? I, I think whenever you go to seven, uh, you very well may, I'll start over again. Uh, I think whenever you go to seven, uh, in a one-hour show, it's, it's pretty hard to schedule a very powerful, you know, the incredibly competitive match in that period of time. Uh, uh, to me, when I see shows that have seven matches in them, it's just my impression some of them are sort of uh, filler matches, throwaway matches. Basically, we have uh, fewer matches on Texas Championship Wrestling. Uh, we go with three matches rather than the customary six to seven matches per tape. We feel that by having fewer matches, we can bring you more competitive matches, where it would be uh, a lot more entertaining. We have fewer matches, but I think by doing that, we have more competition and more exciting matches than you would normally see. Every match that you've put together in our show is um, a high-quality match. There's no matches that are somewhat filler or anything like that. 
Everything is designed to be totally entertaining and challenging to the audience. Now the match is over. You got into the confrontation with the stud. You got a lot that was of time for this championship match next week. Yeah. I mean, they did a graphical transition, but that was abrupt. Um, that was actually a pretty cool segment. Yeah. And, I mean, that mindset of the amount of matches, I mean, that started with World Class. Mm-hmm. I mean, World Class would mainly have three matches a week on television in an hour. Sometimes four, but usually three. Rarely. Yeah, rarely, but mainly three. So it gave them the time to have three matches and do you know, vignettes and skits like that. And boy, would it be awesome if some of these wrestling promotions today would would fall in line with that, you know, of how they how to, uh, you know, set up their TV. Yeah, um, I saw Meltzer saying, uh, I think it was on the Observer board the other day, how in a lot of ways he feels like Tony Khan is a better booker than a lot of past bookers because he's not given the crutch of all these squash matches and stuff. And, well, you know, I less mean, angles yeah, and all yes. that. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that, you know, AW has done, for sure, is uh, most of their matches on television are competitive matches. Uh, they say their squashish matches for their other shows, or internet shows. Um, and they can afford to do that. See, there's a difference. When you're a promotion that is basically, and and, and this is going to change, so it'll be interesting how they do it when they change. When you're not running house shows, right? Of course. I mean, you can afford to do this type of stuff, yeah. but when you start running house shows, that's when you kind of need to be careful. Yes. Now, uh, for the record, the three competitive matches on this March 16, 1991 edition of Texas Championship Wrestling. Tim Chaltree versus Angel of Death. Yes. It w- was Tim Ernesto getting a push here, or I, I mean, mean, he was not—he was not a job guy, so he was. I mean, I was—I don't know if I'd say he's getting a push, but I mean, he was a credible guy in the promotion, so to speak. But he's also a tiny man against a very large man. Well, yeah. Uh, the Davidson brothers, who I guess apparently were still wrestling at the time, against Sweet they're Daddy. local. Yeah, I know, but still. Against Sweet Daddy Falcone and Terry Garvin Sims, and your main event of One Man Gang versus Al Perez. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, really interesting uh, segment there. And Mickey Grant, you know, I mean, he's right in a lot of ways of stuff he's talking about. You know, at that time, you know, you in the nineties, you needed to get away from some of that stuff that you did in the eighties, and you know, be progressive. And, and you know, the times are changing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, interesting stuff there. And Bill Mercer, you know, Bill Mercer included himself in that. I mean, it's absolutely true. Bill Mercer and, and Mickey Grant were the two guys, you know, at the forefront of the, of the production of that television show. Yeah. And Mickey Grant gets all the gets all the praise, but Bill Mercer's right there with him. Yeah. Bill Mercer's still alive, by the way. I don't know if he's still doing work. I think he still does a little bit of his teaching. <laughs> He's 97 years old. So think about that, folks. Maybe 97 this year. 96. But yeah. He's blessed. Blessed to have lived as long as he has and been able to do all the stuff he's as long as he has. 
Yeah, I wonder if you ever got to take that trip to Norwegia, though. <laughs> Maybe get some stem cell treatment there or something. I don't know. Him and Ray. All right, Portland. <laughs> Steve Dahl, who's Northwest Heavyweight Tiles on a tour of Japan. Or Ricky Santana left for Puerto Rico. Brad Anderson left for the Carolina Indies. And Billy Jack Keynes is gone once again. Haynes made some pretty bizarre comments on TV a few weeks back. First, he brought out some food stamps and made some comments about Roddy Piper's pit stop girls mentioning a street that prostitutes hang out at in Portland and told the girls to go back on that street and stick to the food stamps where they stick to other stuff. When Don Costa started looking uneasy, Haynes grabbed him in a bear hug and said that maybe when he's taking a few bumps, he'll have the right to make comments. Needless to say, Haynes was gone at that point. <laughs> Yeah, this was a weird deal. Uh, Haynes at Portland this time. There was another interview that he did uh, before a week mm-hmm. that was really out there. Like he was make, making like some shoot comments against Don Cost for promoting against them or some shit like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a really weird little run here from Billy Jack. So Rip Oliver's return to start up his feud with Billy Jack, but with no Billy Jack, he's not feud with Scott Norton, who has no Steve Dahl to feud with. Yeah, there you go. You got a problem like that? Just put the two guys against each other, I guess. Yes, and to be clear, Piper's Pit Stop is his uh, auto shop that he owns with Linden at the time. And, and I guess the Pit Stop Girls is like his, you know, advertising thing or something. Right, I don't know. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so. Billy <laughs> Jack calling them prostitutes. <laughs> so I'm assuming go. he said something about the... He said something about seeing the pit stop girls, and I'm guessing he made a reference to whatever street would be the equivalent of someone saying, like, 42nd Street in New York, you know, 30 years ago. Stewart Avenue in, Bar- in Atlanta. Mm. Back in the day. Which, the, I mean, that, that that street became so infamous, they had changed the name of it. <laughs> They were so ashamed of the reputation that Stewart Avenue had that it changed it to International Avenue. <laughs> yeah, the Stewart Avenue out on Long Island is nothing like that, I don't think. The Stewart Avenue was known for having strip clubs and prostitution. Good for them. And uh, the strip clubs, some of them are still around on Stewart Avenue to this day. But once it got changed to International Avenue, they decided to, you know, they tried to uh, make it a little bit better. But, a higher yeah. quality of establishment, a Rick's, a Scores kind of. No, 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 uh-huh. not like that. No, no, they were doing. Uh, they were trying to build like uh, build it up a little bit better. Uh, okay, so to speak. Still a lot of crime on on international, but uh, yeah, ain't it ain't what it was, I guess. All right, now let's go to one of the most unique sections we've ever done this show as we combine both WCW and WWF into the same section because there was so little in the newsletters at the time. Matt watches carrying the load basically on some of this, especially WCW. So let's start with them. Insiders close to WCW say that Sid Vicious is asking for a reported $350,000 a year contract in his renewal negotiations. The contract he has now expires in two weeks. And the WCW stars reportedly being courted heavily by Titan Sports for a post-WrestleMania debut. One WCW official says the estimate of Sid's asking price is considered high, but a tough negotiation is expected. You know, we did a whole show on this, and I still don't get why he renewed and then immediately decided to leave. <sighs> it's Sid. No, I know, but like, what did Vince offer him during the neg- original negotiation period when his contract was up? 
probably not enough. And he, and then he comes through with a bigger offer and a chance where Sid could take that offer. And, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a strange thing. Yeah. How that happened. So, yeah. Weird. All right. So Sid was on TV. So we have a clip here. Doing a Sid, Sid Vicious type interview with Missy Hyatt. So let's go to that clip, shall we? Okay. Welcome back to World Championship Wrestling, and I'm Missy Hyatt here with the real giant of World Championship Wrestling, Mr. Sid Vicious. And you know, you put those guys on that gurney and you beat them up. That is so scary. First of all, I want everybody to smell that smell in the air. <laughs> you farted? It's nothing like it. It's called the power bomb. Now, who is the real giant? Well, I'll give you the answer. All you have to do is open your eyes and you take a look at me. And then it comes to you like you were shot in the head with a diamond bullet. You say to yourself, <laughs> This man is superior to all. This man rules the world. This man is Sid Vicious. That's it. Edo, let's go to the ring. <laughs> the Calgary Alberta, 225 pounds. It is Owen Hart. <laughs> also, how about Tony Gillum thinking he was off camera after he said Owen Hart's name? <laughs> yes, it is Owen Hart in one of his rare appearances in WCW. <laughs> by Paulie Dennis. Hey, Paul, where'd you go? Uh, I thought you were going to be in this interview with Sid Vicious and Missy Hyatt. Is it over? Yeah, so yeah, Owen Hart appearance. Yeah, also interesting, even though they're not side by side, where I have it paused. Owen was considered a small guy in a big guy's territory. Kyle was considered a big guy in a small guy's territory. And they're about the same size. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of difference there, is there? Yeah, I'm curious to see when they lock up. Yeah, Kyle might be a little taller. He is. But that's about it. it. It's not much. Little taller, yeah. maybe a little broader frame, but not much. But that's what makes him look bigger, yeah. Yeah, Owen with his interesting singlets in this era. Yeah. Oh, there's the Enzigiri. Guess he has to go to the hospital. <laughs> Tell me a lie, et cetera, et cetera. No, Roxanne Perez is not involved in this match, Big, so... No. There's that. But, uh, yeah, how about Sid shooting in the head with a diamond bullet? I can see why he thought that was a good line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sid was doing some some interesting work here at the time in WCW. As they're trying to... He's still the member of the Horsemen, but he's not. You know, he's he's very rarely with them. He's on his own. So, yeah. Interesting booking of one Sid duty here by Dusty Rose at the time. All right, Jim Hurd told Matt Watch on March 18th that Butch Reed had asked for a 60-day leave of absence, where it continues to service that he'll be returned to Titan. 
Heard said Reed told WCW he needs to sort out some pressing personal problems, which is code for his wife is ready for him to come back home. Hers of the match, match that Reed and Simmons had Tokyo Dome would be added out of the American Preview version, which it was. And that was Chris adding that. They, uh, excuse me, Steve did not say anything about. No, but whenever Butch Reed goes away, that's what it is, basically. Her in a lot of ways. problem, yes. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of Butch Reed, where are they on March 15th? Kansas City. Before sell across 3,000 fans. As Brad Armstrong beat Moondog Rex, two stars. Dustin Rose beat the Mast El Cubano, Fidel Sierra, star and a half. Larry Zabisco over Mike George, one star. Tom Zink went to a draw with Terrence Taylor, two stars. Brian Pillman and Owen Hart beat the Fabulous Freebirds, three stars. That's a match. JYD, Sting, and Rick Steiner beat Barry Windham, Danny Spivey, and Stan Hansen at three and a half stars. So we got the, the guy that Hansen was supposed to team with, that, with the guy that replaced him in the team, with Hansen. Here in this match. It's too bad Mike Rotunda isn't here. So then we could have Mike Rotunda teaming with the guy who he was supposed to team who teamed with, then the guy who replaced him in the team, too. It's all one big family. Ron Simmons over Butch Reed, three and a half stars, and Ellie Gante over Rick Flair by DQ and win the Minifier star and a half. Then they go to St. Louis of the sixteenth for the four three hundred fans as uh, Dave Sierra beat Dr. X, which was Moondog under the mask. Dustin Rose over Larry Zabisco. Zink went to a draw with Taylor. Owen and Pillman over the Freebirds. Simmons over Reed. Best match on the card. Hanson and Wyndham over JYD and Rick Steiner. And Flair over Sting in a cage match with El Gigante as the referee. Oh, that sounds delightful. Mm. Then we go to Columbia, South Carolina, where Ricky Morton beat uh, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. Big Joshua Moondog. Rex, Brad Armstrong, and Owen Hart over Dr. X and Kevin Sullivan. So we have Moondog working back-to-back, team with Kevin Sullivan, losing to Brad and Owen. That's the match. Dustin Rose over Dutch Mantel. Terrence Taylor went to a draw with Bobby Eaton. JYD over Jack Victory. Young Pistols over the Freebirds. And Big Josh won a Battle Royal. Yeesh. Yeah, I'm curious what the attendance would have been on this card. You know? Yeah, that said, they're actually showing some positive momentum on the other shows, attendance-wise. Yes. Now, Mr. Hughes will take... Yeah. Mr. Hughes will take Buddy Landell's spot and feud with Bobby Eaton with Hughes doing a big Bubba character. Mr. Which Hughes. he does. Yeah. Uh, Buddy Landell's gone. Also, Curtis Hughes, Butch Reed, a show in Kansas City. Is this just this Kansas City section this week? <laughs> yeah. Everything that's not about Sid <laughs> is either a wrestler from Kansas City or on a loop that includes Kansas City. Yeah. Um... Were Owen Hart and Brian Pillman ever actually called Wings? Or is there like a newsletter thing that they were going to be called Wings? They never were actually called that, no. But that was the idea. I right? think that was out that was out there, yes. Yes. Was that a was that a true thing? I don't know. But that was something that was out there. Who would be the Paul and who would be the Linda? Um who would be the um Oh, God. What was that dude's name on Wings on NBC? Steven oh, but, Weber? But, but, but Steven Weber. I thought you were going to say... Steven uh, Weber. Uh, uh, yeah. Call it Tyne Daly's brother. Who was going to be the Joe Joe Hackett and Brian Hackett? Yeah. Um, Was their finisher called Wings at the Speed of Sound? <laughs> or Ram? Th- it would have been the Thomas Hayden Church character. The mechanic. I guess that could have been Norman, but he's gone by now. 
Hey, Tony Shalhoub was the taxi driver. I could have got uh, it would have been the uh, local Italian wrestler that would have been uh, playing a taxi the driver. Tony Shalhoub of professional wrestling. <laughs> Who would have been that character? He played a taxi driver. Antonio I, Scarpacci. Oh, I don't know. I put Gary Sabal in the gimmick or something. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I don't think I ever knew any of the other wings band members other than Linda McCartney. Until looking it up just now on Wikipedia, so I'm not going to ask who the Denny Lane or the Denny C. Oh, was. Denny Lane played with Paul McCartney forever. I well, think. yes, uh, yes. Yeah. The McCulloch's. Yeah, Wings was uh, some quality music. Yeah, it's quality, quality music. Well, all right, keep going. Yeah, now let's go to the World Wrestling Federation and back to Matt Watch. Kajra Baziri, aka the Iron Sheik, has signed to return to WF in a new character. Baziri will portray an alleged relative of Muammar Gaddafi and will reportedly team with Sardar Sardar in some summer matches. Insiders say that Baziri could be instrumental in the eventual turn of Sardar SummerSlam to revive the old Slaughter Sheik series. Well, the turn happens, but we do not get the Slaughter Sheik series again, thank God. Oh, that would be terrible 91. But it's interesting they never did that, though. You would have thought they would have. Well, and he becomes Iraqi. Yeah. You would have thought they would have uh, done that gimmick a little bit, but it's dull. Conan says it though, yeah, for he'll become the Matador. No. But last sports have differing thoughts on whether he'll be with or without the hood. The first plan was for him to be a blue blazer type, but with Ed Leslie under the mask as a mariner, it's up in the air whether Vince wants to push two similar masked guys. The Matador. <laughs> it's Conan, huh? This is Steve. So do you think there's there's anything to this and they decide this to revamp the whole thing and make it Tito? I don't know. El Matador. Because when, when is the tour with Tito Undertaker in Spain? Because that's pre-El Matador, but they're clearly trying to build around him. Oh, that's later on. I know it's later in the year. That's like August? Maybe? September? Yeah, that's September-ish. So, but yeah, I mean, this is a thing where, I mean, they're talking about Conan a lot, you know, coming to WWF at this time. He's going to lose his mask in Mexico. That was the plan, and this, that, and the other. And then, it, then the whole Max Moon thing, and blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, it'd been interesting to see how Conan would have been in WWF, but hey, he's going to finally be in the WWF at WrestleMania. Inducting Rey Mysterio in the Hall of Fame, hmm. which, which, if that doesn't tell you that Vince McMahon is not involved in day-to-day operations, then I don't know what does. <laughs> oh, you mean someone who has been as banished from that company as he has been for the past 30 years? Yes. Do you honestly think that if a Vince McMahon was, was had any type of say-so in day-to-day operations, he would allow that to happen? Conan? No way. At the Hall of Fame, because Vince, I mean, Vince always had a thing for the Hall of Fame. They wouldn't, Remember, they they wouldn't let Lance Russell and Jerry Lawler. Yeah. Lance Russell, who's beloved. So, yeah. Speaking of the Mariner, let's go to Wrestling Challenge there on March 17th, where Earthquake is roughing up a job guy, and uh, the Mariner makes an appearance. We weren't, oh wait, oh yeah, we did have, Sorry, I was so concentrated on the Conan thing, I forgot that we just talked about this. Yes, but let's... They're not really similar, but whatever. It's... Well, it's Max Conan. 
he squashes Grant Valentine. Another job, guy. intruder has certainly become quite a nuisance for the earthquake. One has to wonder if the mystery man is going to follow the walking natural disaster to Los Angeles at WrestleMania 7 in just one week next... Okay, um... Masked intruder, huh? They haven't named him yet, but, uh... Well, I and mean, he never got a name on TV. <laughs> no, he didn't. And he's saving Gray Valentine, which I thought was a nice touch. Yeah, I... I always figured the idea was going to be he'd be revealed as Rudis Beefcake with the idea he now had a superhuman headbutt from the metal plates. Yeah. But I think it ended up being that he was told not to return yet, medically, right? Well, he doesn't wrestle until 1993, so yeah. I think he does some indie dates maybe before the comeback. Or am I thinking later? But yeah, so... Well, it's, it's Beefcake doing indie dates, so who knows? He probably could have. Yeah, um, I always found it weird, too. I think, did I mention this the last time this gimmick came up? His nickname online became Furface, even though the costume with the fur on the mask was never used on TV. Yes. How did people know to call him Furface? I have no idea. Right, because that, that photo that's in the WWF encyclopedia with the furry mask and outfit was never on TV. They never, yeah, they never used that. Weird. That was That was just a prototype. I guess. Also, holy shit, is Beefcake jacked here? Well, he, he's got nothing to do but work out, Pix. <laughs> yeah? I mean, yeah. They're not testing him, obviously. Well, it's testing hasn't started, period, for sure. I know. That's what I'm saying. They do right, have a, a lot comprehensive of... drug testing program. Let's just pretend that it's not something other than just cocaine. But anyway. Yeah. We got the God and... Yeah, we've got a lot of house shows now. So let's go to Madison Square Garden on the 15th, on 14,500. As we have Marty Janetti or Pat Tanaka, three stars. The Mountie over Coco Beware, one star. Day Boy of a Warlord, star and a half. Undertaker over Tugboat, three quarters of a star. Heart Foundation over Earthquake and Bravo, two stars. Barbarian over Jim Brunzel, star and a quarter. Carrie Von Eric of Ted DiBiase, two, two stars. Kato over Shawn Michaels, three and three-quarter stars. And Duggan over Slaughter by DQ in a match where Hogan and Adnan were in the corners, and the winner got the way of the flag of his country. That's No star rating. That's interesting that there's Hogan is on this show but not wrestling. Mm-hmm. How often did they well, do that? Uh, in the, at the Garden? I mean, any um, major arena. It happened, but it's, it's rare. Yeah, I wonder what the deal was there. Um... I mean, obviously, you don't want to do Hogan Slaughter, so is the, I, I guess here the idea is 
you don't want to do Hogan Slaughter, obviously, but you want to have Hogan there and you want to heat up Hogan Slaughter. So I guess this is the way you do it. And they're working the next Garden show. Is that the Desert Storm match? I wonder if it's that one in particular. Or the one after. Okay. Uh, and maybe May. But yeah, Mania. I mean, Mania's coming up. So you don't want to do the singles match, you know, here and do it there. So, yeah, you do you do a deal here to, to heat it up a little bit. So, I mean, that's the difference, I guess. Yeah, I mean, also interesting, too, is uh, I, I'm curious whose star ratings these are, if this is Dave watching it on MSG or if this is someone who was there, because I've always thought, and I don't think I've ever seen anyone else who, dis, anyone who disagreed, like, I always thought Tanaka Janetti was the much better of the two Rockers or an Express matches on the card. I guess it came down to personal preference, Bix, more than anything else. And this is the one with the memorable finish, where Tanaka sets Marty up for a tombstone, and Marty reverses and just plants him with the cage driller, but seemingly does not break his neck. Yeah. Hell of a Coliseum video match. Yes. I think that ends up on, what, WrestleFest that year? Or Battle of the WF Superstars, or one of those videos. All those videos run together, but they're all awesome. Winnipeg on March 15th through 10,500, which is the largest crowd in Winnipeg in years, as the Nasty Boys beat the Bushwhackers. Greg Valentine over Paul Roma, Jimmy Snooker over the Brooklyn Brawler, Bossman over the Viking, best match on the card, John Nord. How about that? Best match on the card, Bossman and John Nord. Well, remember, Nord's working his ass off at the beginning. I mean, those squash matches on TV where he's doing all the crazy dives and stuff. Yeah. Legion of Doom over Demolition, Jake the Snake over Rip Martell, and Slaughter over Ultimate Warrior in a cage match. Hmm. Pittsburgh on a 16th or 9,000, as Orient Express beat the Bushwhackers, Duggan over Haku, Tito over Brooklyn Brawler, Slaughter over Warrior in a cage match that went 26 minutes, <laughs> Mountie over Jimmy Snuka, LOD over Nasty Boys, Bossman and Jake over Perfect and Martell is your main event. So it looks like that. The uh, Warrior Slaughter Cage matches are doing okay at the box office here. 9,000 Pittsburgh, 10,500 in Winnipeg. And Civic Arena is what? Like 11,000, 12,000 capacity? Uh, yeah, I think, no, really, I think it depends on the configuration. So that's, yeah, pretty good crowd for Pittsburgh, too. Yeah. Detroit, no attendance. So, uh, so this would be the Palace, I guess. Uh, Tito over Haku, Mountie over Jimmy Snuka, LOD over Nasty Boys, Duggan over Adnan, Bushwalkers over Oregon Express, Bossman Jake over Perfect and Martell, and Slaughter over Warrior in the Cage Match. Then we have Miami on the 17th, which had Greg Valentine over Dino Bravo, Dole, Duggan over Akbar, I mean Akbar, Adnan, horrendous, Undertaker over Tubboat, one star man for Paul Bear, Warler and Dave Boy Smith did the arm wrestling challenge. The match between Bushwhackers and Power of Glory never took place. As Hercules didn't make it, and Roma walked out before the match started. Barbarian over Coco. Best match on the show. Legion of Doom over Demolition. Slow. And Warrior was starting a cage match. It was never announced as a non-title match, leaving fans confused. This is only funny because WF used to complain about how Ole Anderson was screwing things up, doing the exact same thing, and Ole was screwing things up by doing so. Mm-hmm. Um... It was bigger than I thought it was. Wikipedia says hockey capacity was like seventeen. Yes, yeah, so I thought it was eight, I was going to say eighteen thousand. So, I guess, so this I said, is, it's half a house for wrestling, but still, given the overall business trends, it's a good number. Yeah. 
Richfield, Ohio on the 17th. Saw the Mountie over Jimmy Snooker. The Hearts over Nasty Boys. Tito over Haku. Robertson Bossman over Perfect and Martell. Best match on the card. Orange Express over the Rockers. Carrier over DiBiase. And Hogan over Earthquake in a stretcher match at their grueling main event. It lasted three minutes and 22 seconds. Hmm. And interesting, no attendance here when Richfield is always such a strong building for them in this era. And the primetime pre-WrestleMania special on March 17th drew a strong 3.8 rating, which they believe is the best rating for cable wrestling show besides The Clash in about a year. Mr. Perfect and Shawn Michaels had about a four-star match on the show that people have been raving about. The replay the next time did a 3.3. Yeah, Shawn Michaels was having some stout singles matches in this era. Yeah. It's like he was trying to prove something when he got a chance, huh? This is the one that was taped in San Antonio, right? Uh, This is the one that was on World Tour 91. Oh, so this is the one from Germany? This is from or was Pensacola. That a TV, or was it a U.S. taping? Okay. Well. This is from Pensacola. They had a special taping mm-hmm. where, I mean, you had Perfect over Michaels, uh, Dave Boy won a squash, Rip Martell over Coco Beware, and a blindfold match. Valentine to squash Hogan over Adnan just over a minute where they um, draped the Iraqi flag on Hogan. Nasty was one about a Royal. Uh, this was taken. That was taken to Macon. And then uh Brett over Brian Knobs and Untaker over Tubboat. Okay. Um, I can't believe I forgot this. You know, we were, I think this came up earlier or maybe it was last week when we were doing the plugs. This is not the first march to WrestleMania. It is the one and only Superstars and Stripes Forever. This was the road to WrestleMania 8 or 7. Yes. Yeah. Um, So the Sunday broadcast, 2.09 million homes. Monday was 1.82 million. So very strong numbers. All-American with a 3-3 on Sunday, too. Mm -hmm. 1.85 million homes. I mean, even then, like, you know, all those are ahead of WCW for the week, but still World Championship Wrestling on Saturday did a 2.755 share, 1.43 million homes. So it's like, not like they're doing bad numbers. Main event did pretty much exactly the same. So strong TV ratings for everyone. Wish we had something more eventful to end on, but whatever. Yeah, that's the way it was in this segment, Biggs. I mean, WCW in the same segment. So, yeah, interesting week. In wrestling history, absolutely, as uh, Dave Meltzer is in Japan for the bulk of the week, and that's where all the the heavy news is at. So anyway, that's it for us this week. Next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1995. Oh. Well, guess what? Dave Meltzer's in Japan. (laughs) Um, It's not going to be as thorough as what we talked about today on this show this week but he is very thorough in one section dave was at the yokama arena show for all japan women on march 26 the okay. week before the april 2nd dome show is that the one with uh lina sasuke yumiko hota and bull nakano yes yeah going away for the wwf title okay yes and manami Kong. So, yes, Dave has a very glowing review of that. So we'll have Dave in Japan. Other shows he attended as well during our week. There were shows that he also attended that weren't during our week, which we've already covered before Between the Sheets, if I'm not mistaken, because we've already done the April 2nd Dome show. We, so anyway. Yeah, we did, I think. Yeah. 
So there's that. All right. Um, World Championship Wrestling. We got news on Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair having a major rift for real during the week. And some uh, interesting uh, stuff behind the scenes going on there. In front of the camera, we get uh, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage me- meeting with Nick Bottenwinkle trying to get Ric Flair reinstated. Is this the beginning? As you remember last year, we talked about him getting reinstated. So this is the first of that. And uh, we have um, Lord Stephen Regal and Bobby Eaton going out to dinner, among other things. So uh, interesting WCW section next week. All right, uh, Marcus Dupree in Memphis. So yeah, we'll talk about him. As uh, he meets one Diamond Mike on television, The Undertaker is, is coming to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Gangsters ain't too happy about that, so we'll have that. And Al, Sno- Al Snow and Unibomb become the Rock and Roll Express. So we'll have that. Uh, we got uh, a bunch of interesting indie results. Believe me. Then we got John Arezzi trying to get a pay-per-view for AAA in America. We'll have that. That's some ECW news. Uh, we got Lucha. AAA is having a hell of a week. So we'll talk about that on t- with TV and sellouts. So we'll have that. Uh, sorry, I talked about Japan and um, WWF as uh, WrestleMania was just around the corner. So we'll have uh, the Raw for WrestleMania, which is an interesting show. Bam Bam Bigelow and Lawrence Taylor and Howard Stern, which we don't have any clips of that, sadly. WWF, in a rare moment of honesty on their television show about one of their talents, and Middle Mission apologized to the smoking guns. Or do they? All that more next week on Between the Sheets. We may have a guest. We may not. Who knows? That No decision has been made yet. Got to record so, Patreon uh, among, and do other stuff, so we'll see. Yes. Especially since so we don't anyway, know what day I'm moving yet, although that won't be next week, but still. So, yes. So that is next week on Between the Sheets. Another interesting show. All right. Big Six is always on the Rock of the Show. This is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, Patreon special edition number 77. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, it's time to go back to 1993 and look at a year in the life of one Paul Heyman. And just look at the passion that he has for this business. <laughs> All right, like I said, I, you know, I don't read these ahead of time. Do we have any uh, extensive interviews on this one that like we had in the previous show with Paul and John Clark? Um, we we don't have another uh, John Clark interview with Paul, but we have a torch talk with Paul and a flyer interview with Eddie. Well, okay, but but nothing like a marathon session. No, <laughs> like we, we don't had. have anything that looks like it was a three-hour middle-of-the-night interview with Paul. No. All right. So, all right. Well... We left off at the end of May, as uh, Paul's already joined ECW, WWN is starting to uh, get their plans going, and uh, all that stuff. So let's pick up where we left off, and let's go to June. Excerpt from "Want to Be a Promoter?" Come here by Bruce Mitchell, Torch columnist. RB Creative Marketing is selling a wrestling game for IBM compatible computers called Pro Wrestling Promoter. This was put together by Barry Jackson, a WCW promoter in the Midwest. Wrestling Service, September 13, 1993. Now that's what I call creative pro wrestling marketing for the 90s. Imagine a myriad of ways this computer game could be set up. This is the obvious WCW variation. Pouring money down the drain is more suited for a plumbing manual than an IBM game. And soon the general public is going to know so much about the lives of Titan sports promoters, and none of it the slightest bit entertaining, that a computer game like the feds could hardly do them justice. We'll drop the big two for consideration, but never fear. At least enough egomaniacal screwballs rip off artists in that cases to build several games around a multitude of possibilities for game concepts comes to mind. Here are but two, the single mark game. Now the key to making money for many workers in this business is not the captivate an audience, but the fool of single mark. The con goes something like this. Find the rich, shock-sniffing fan who reads newsletters and thinks he can bring back the wrestling of his childhood. It helps immensely if this rich Mark is an inveterate ham and secretly wants to be a big wrestling star. He should have some money, but not so much that he has any savvy about paying the tab for all the expenses or will ask questions about when or how money will start flowing into the business instead of just out. Claiming that the promotion will feature this type of hardcore action and a legion of fans, you know, guys like him, are throffing at the mouth to see. Stock it with three types of talent. WF has bins the brawlers who, at this late unhealthy date, still do not mind slicing up their foreheads, and any cronies of the booker or mark, I mean the promoter. Well, we've seen a lot of this over the years, haven't we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Obviously, the poster board for this con, I mean game, was going to be Eddie Gilbert. But his behavior has become so erratic that he was last seen turning himself babyface and retiring. So he can sell his old clothes to his adoring public before calling up whatever's left of the NWA board to pitch himself as their new NWA champion. Todd Gordon, $120,000 in the hole and sinking, learned so much from his business relationship of old hot stuff that he is now paying Jim Crockett twice as much as he had paid Eddie to let Paul Heyman book for him. And what about the NWA board? The inspiration for the next pro wrestling promoter game concept? Okay. One of the things I hate about the torch in this era, and we've talked about this a little bit before, there will be things we've never heard before in a Bruce column, like hard facts or about news that should have been in the torch itself. You know what I mean? Like, no. here, he's paying 
Jim Crockett a hundred grand in nineteen ninety three money to pay Paul to book for him? Okay. I mean the Bruce Mitchell columns and stuff like that of this era is like the guys that have the Twitter DMs, they get the news of Twitter DMs and they put it out there when the reporters are. Yes. Um That's what that is. And also, you know, there was the thing uh year earlier. The thing about what? With the whole thing about Barry Windham being offered the deal to retire. That was never in the newsletters otherwise. No. Um, And as we saw with Bruce in later years, too, when Bruce does try to play reporter, doesn't necessarily go well either. (laughs) No. You can uh, ask at least one person who's been a guest on this show before about that. Yeah. But anyway, All right. let's continue. The no promoting promoter game. What a pack of rocket scientists these guys are, huh? When was the last time WCW management outsmarted anyone but a, a rapidly, rapidly joining a bunch of pay per view subscribers? Bischoff and company slipped the NWA board with a dramatic Perry Mason style last, last minute letter to tell how the last NWA president had the temerity to sell the only people, WCW, who can get any use of the, of the NWA belt name. <clears throat> Check out the membership roster. The once proud NWA, the anchor of a nationwide pro wrestling monopoly, has been reduced to this. One guy, Jim Crockett, who's legally forbidden to promote wrestling cards, probably for his own protection since last time he did, he ran a 50-year-old family business in the financial ruin. Another guy, Crockett's frontman, Paul Heyman, who talks a good game. Something about an unlikely youth-oriented Dr. Dre, Dan Cortez, MTV Howard Stern pro wrestling hybrid. Heyman, of course, has over-chronicled blow-ups to every management team he's ever worked for. On the shows he's promoted so far, he's brought out the same old Texas retreads, Titan cast-offs, and pals that everyone else has. And we're having all that gaga about high-definition television. No one wears a torch better than old Paul Lee. (laughs) 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 That may be the best sentence Bruce Mitchell's ever written in the column. I mean, say what you will about Wade... (laughs) He had no problem with Bruce calling him on his shit in the torch about how <laughs> he covered uh, Paul and Eddie in the torch. <laughs> Remember the quote about how much he can learn from A-Triple-A's Antonio Pena? Heyman neglected to mention he's in L.A. tonight at Triple-A's big show. New football, the show would sell out and blew it off anyway to go out partying. <laughs> <laughs> and I will not leave Los Angeles until I have a TV deal. And Dennis Corluzzo, an insurance salesman who pre-sells independent shows on a sporadic basis in the Northeast. He made news last week one of those pre-sold shows actually made money for the sponsoring charity. Corluzzo is now feeding with NWA member Todd Gordon over who gets to run money-losing shows in the Philly area. Crockett logically thinks it should be Gordon since he's proven to be better at running Randy shows in the air than anyone since Gold, Joel Goodhart. Gold Goodhart. <laughs> how about an independent promoter for a change who has a well thought out product with new ideas actually has a chance to make money selling tickets to wrestling fans and maybe the indies could stop playing these silly games altogether. <laughs> okay a few things here one of all the things you can say about Dennis that is kind of a cheap shot though because Bruce does not seem to understand how sold shows work you buy the show it is your yeah. job as the entity buying the show to promote it. Yes. If schools, you know, Knights of Columbus, whoever, were buying these shows from Dennis and not making money on them, that's their fault. That's not Dennis's. 
No, it's not. And also, Dennis was good at getting sponsors and stuff in an era where, I mean, where I guess that's starting to die out. You know, but, uh, you know, he gets sponsors for his shows. Like, he's a character, but, like, it's not like he had no business savvy. Well, we know what sponsors he was getting, too, sometimes. Well. We mentioned that on the main show lately. Yeah, but... So that is a little frustrating because, like, again, like, that's that's not how sold shows work, Bruce. Um, how about the, that uh, anecdote about the L.A. thing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Dre, Dan Cortez, MTV, Howard Stern, Pro Wrestling Hybrid. <laughs> he pretty much had all the talking points on that one. So. Yeah, and high-definition television. Gaga. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, he's right about most of what he says here, though. Yeah, he was. And of course, no one works the torch better than old Paulie. <laughs> A classic one, yes. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash Between the Sheets.